Hello, everybody, and welcome to All N. My name is Snake Man Seth. And I am Genesis Does What Eric Don't. We are coming to you today from the courthouse where our matured Manticore son is defending himself against the paper boy as a newly christened defense attorney. And I cannot believe that is a series of words that now exists. But focusing on the show, TGS is going on right now. There's still a ton of other stuff to get to in this week's news roundup. Yes, and as much as I would love to help little Eric, we are needed here. I mean, who else is going to do our indie showcase all about the budget beat-em-up from the creator of Gunman Clive, Super Punch Patrol? Exactly. We've also got our top five. We're counting down the greatest Amiibo figures Nintendo's ever released. And with Mega Man 3 turning 30 in just a couple days, we're going to be joined by Ash Paulson of Game Explain for a huge retrospective on the Blue Bombers' third game. I cannot wait. And Oh, hey, it looks like everybody's coming out of the courtroom. Hey, we're going to go catch up with little Eric the Manticore, and I cannot think of a better time to go all in. Buddy, how did your first criminal defense go? Oh well, okay. The jury's out now, so they're they're deliberating. Okay, good. You you know you're our big guy, so we believe in you. All right, cool. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, we're just gonna do the episode. I guess if you want to wait out in the lobby, we'll we'll link back up. Keep us updated. All right, we love you, buddy. You're our big guy. I'm so proud of him. It really feels like it. It feels like just this past month we were getting him as an infant from the Forest Sage. Uh, it wasn't even a month ago, but... Time flies when you're a parent, I guess, but, you know. We'll, we'll wish him the best, and he'll keep us updated and everything, and I'm sure it's going to be fine. But we got a show to do. What's been going on this week? Well, I mean, since, you know, our boy is his own defense attorney now, I kind of left most of that to him this past week. But I did get... Uh, the chance to play a few things. I did dive right into the deep end of Super Mario 3D All-Stars that released last week and uh, have almost 100%ed Super Mario Sunshine. I've never actually 100%ed the game. In terms of 3D Mario games, that's the only one that I've never 100%ed. So, yeah. There's a good reason for that, as it turns out, though. Yeah, <laughs> blue coins, man. And that that's all I have left. In Super Mario yeah. Sunshine on 3D All-Stars right now. All I have left to do is find those stupid blue coins. And when I say fine, I mean, frankly, I'm I mean, I'm mean, getting a guide for that. Like, that's ridiculous. You have like, to. There's no way I'm finding all those without a guide. There, there's a reason that they are so infamous. There's a reason they never made a return. It's one of the very many little weird quirks that game has. I do love that game. But... That game has a lot of little weird quirks. How are you finding it now that you actually have spent a bunch of time with it here, all this time removed, all this time later? How's it holding up in 2020? <laughs> all right. Well, to to be brutally honest, uh, it is comfortably my least favorite 3D Mario game. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, I, I do find myself fighting with the controls more than I should have to, and especially with the perspective. Do you mean just the camera? Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, ultimately, it's incredibly well-designed, but there's I have lost way too many lives. I really don't think I should have. I, I've been playing with it a little bit. The, the one that I've really been really kind of hooked with, the, the one that I keep coming back to, of course, is Galaxy. But I've played a fair bit of Sunshine in this collection now, and the thing that I either just forgot or it just feels weird to me, Mario himself feels weirdly, I don't know, slippery? In this game? I don't know if that makes sense. In Galaxy? No, no, no. In Sunshine. Sorry. Okay. And Galaxy feels perfect. I mean, that game's immaculate. But he just like in Sunshine, I just felt like there there were many times where I'd like land on a platform and I felt like he had a little too much extra forward momentum. And I definitely lost a bunch of lives like that. Just like misjudging the jump or or not kind of like reacclimating to the feel of that game. It was weird. And I'll say, I really I really don't remember it doing this, but the the underside of uh, Pianta Village really, oh, yeah. really triggered my fear of heights. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It's it's a, it's funny, though, because like even the even the weakest 3D Mario game is still pretty good. You know what I mean? And, and it's got a lot oh, of yeah. weird little quirks. Like one thing that you kind of forget about. I, you know, of course I, you know, the game's infamous for its voice acting and stuff like that, but you get the sense that this weird GameCube era for Nintendo, there, there were definitely, it was almost like they were trying to create like a Mario cinematic universe or something. <laughs> like they were trying to have a little connective tissue to EGAD and stuff like that. Oh yeah. I, I didn't even realize this up until this playthrough of Mario Sunshine, but Bowser's I, magical, I guess. Paintbrush is also from yeah. EGAD. So it's just weird stuff like that. Like they're they're like trying to make some sort of weird connected story with these GameCube Mario entries. Just super strange. Just a little thing that I kind of noticed. Now, don't get me wrong. I would still love to dive much deeper into the GameCube catalog. Very few GameCube games I even I got the chance to ever play because I never right. uh, properly owned one. So, you know, between Crystal Chronicles remastered, between Super Mario Sunshine, I have been able to to dip my toe back into the GameCube catalog. Would certainly love to have some more, but I did want to play Sunshine because, again, it is the only 3D Mario platformer that I have not 100%ed before. But I am going to be going back to Mario 64 after that, once I finally do finish all those blue coins, and then I'll finish off the 3D All-Stars by replaying for the first time in over 10 years my favorite game of all time super mario galaxy it's so good it's so very good i i've played a little bit of it just to kind of you know little taste little taste of things to come but it i just of the little bit that i've played it plays even better than i remember it absolutely holds up originally i was like i'm gonna play through this whole thing with the two joy cons to recreate that Wii remote nunchuck experience but I happened to play a good chunk of it with a pro controller and I was super impressed how good it feels with the pro controller. They did a really good job with that. I feel like I agree. I might actually just stick with that for the rest of my playthrough, but I'm that game's so good. And it looks, it is so pretty, man. I think I said it last week on the show, but I mean, (laughs) you literally could just release that today. And I don't think too many people would bat an eye. I mean, it looks that good. Oh, what a great game. Well, maybe we'll get galaxy two down the line like we were talking about. But in addition to Mario 3D All-Stars, we also got those additions to the Super Nintendo and Nintendo Switch Online services. 
So, of course, I played a little bit of Donkey Kong Country 2. I did get to try out Peacemakers, the Peacemakers. I did try out Scat. And I've got to say, I was pretty pleasantly surprised with both Peacemakers and Scat. Peacemakers, a beat-em-up, another beat-em-up. Uh, I, you know, so many of those, it feels like, are dropping around now. But I was pleasantly surprised. Reminded me a little bit of the old Spider-Man beat-em-ups from the Super Nintendo, like Maximum Carnage. Oh, yeah. Classic. Yeah. And then Scat was a really interesting shoot 'em up that I never got the opportunity to play, but really, really interesting little shoot 'em up there. So I recommend people check out both Peacekeepers and Scat. But I've got to admit, like I've I've nearly got addicted, almost to the point of forgetting Mario 3D All Stars. I just got really addicted to Mario Super Picross. I really did. Really. Did, yeah. you, did you have to consult Nintendo's video? <laughs> oh, no. You know, I I had dabbled in Picross a little bit, you know, years ago. So I remembered it's not a complicated puzzle. No, not at all. I mean, figuring them out can be, you know, pretty brain twisty. But being able to read the puzzles is not hard at all. There's some great Picross games on Switch. There really are. And the Picross 3D on a DS and then 3D2 on 3DS were both amazing. Oh, so good. I, I literally played those games every night for a long, long time, for months. I was playing them every night before bed. Yeah, I might have to find a few more to do after I finish these. I uh, would like to see, would have liked to have seen, and maybe more will be toward... The, the later parts of the game. But I would really like to see more Mario-themed puzzles in that one, even though it's Mario mm. Super Picross. A lot of the puzzle solutions are like dolphins or a pair of glasses or a pirate ship or, or something Just like that. Random stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I would like to see more Super Mushrooms or, you know, Koopas or Goombas, stuff like that. I mean, it is, again, Mario Super Picross have Mario-themed right. solutions. But... Still, I'm having a blast with it, a lot more so than I thought I would. And of course, of course, Donkey Kong Country 2 does speak for itself. So, I mean, it really does. It's one of the best platformers ever. So, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, played that and did get to play a little bit of something else that we'll be talking about here in just a few minutes. So, I have had a lot of time behind the sticks actually this week. But what about you, buddy? Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, the, the big one for me is I have just been hopelessly, helplessly addicted to Hades. My God, that game is so good. It, it is, and I say this with no hyperbole, it is probably my current front runner for game of the year. It's that good. I just have no complaints with the game whatsoever. I Super Giant Games, I've been a longtime fan of them. I've literally followed them. I'm not exaggerating here. From their inception, Giant Bomb did a behind-the-scenes documentary when they founded the company called Building the Bastion. And basically, it was a documentary of like them every few months or so, a new episode would release of them developing Bastion leading up to the game's release. Bastion, of course, being their first game. They also did Transistor and then Pyre and, and, and now Hades. And man... It is just wonderful. It is just absolutely wonderful. It, the art is is so strong. You know, Gen Z's art has always been great, but but this is just it feels like everything Supergiant is good at, 
amped up to 11 from the art to Darren Corb's music to the writing, the, the amount of writing on display here is staggering. Like I can't even imagine how many lines of dialogue of fully voiced, by the way, dialogue is in this game. It is just, uh, I, I have no complaints whatsoever in terms of the roguelike genre. It is completely like, it's doing things that no other roguelike I've played before has. The combat is fast and snappy, and there's so much depth and nuance to it. I, I cannot say enough good things about this game. If you have any interest in this game whatsoever, go buy it like yesterday. It is so good. So tell me how you really feel about the game, Seth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I could wax on about this game for a long time, but I, but I will, you know, I will save you the. Uh, I will save you the fanboy squealing, but it's, it's wonderful. I, I cannot recommend the game highly enough. I, 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 I've been floored by it. I almost completed my first run through of the game, uh, cause it is roguelike. So, you know, it is run based, but the way they handle that is really interesting. And, uh, there's a lot of like permanent upgrades that you can earn in your runs. You, uh, get a little bit of story between the runs and stuff like that. And the game reacts to the things you've done in your runs. It's so interesting. And then it has all these like mythological characters that are really well acted and personified. And I, I could go on and on, but yeah, just go, you know, run, don't walk. It, it is so good. Go buy it. If you have any interest, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look up a trailer. It's, it is just a wonderful, wonderful game. So Hades by Supergiant. I, I've been really stuck on that. I, I will say uh, I played a little bit of secret game that we'll talk about in a minute. Also, so I'm definitely looking forward to playing our, to talking about that. Uh, played a little bit of Super Punch Patrol, which we're going to talk about in our indie showcase this week. So definitely stay tuned for that. And, you know, other than that, I, uh, I spent about two and a half hours or so of my life this week trying to secure those Super Mario 35th anniversary pins. <laughs> that was a whole journey. That, that was a whole like novel there because, dude, and I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I should have. It, I, the second they went live, their servers just absolutely melted. Just melted. And I could get to the point where like through persistence, I could at least get it into my cart, but it wouldn't progress any further. And it would just, it was giving me server errors and this, that, and the other. And then eventually it's like, oh, we're sold out. But then I was hearing like weird things. I had this whole Twitter discourse with other Nintendo fans that follow me on Twitter. And like, <laughs> I was having this like dialogue with a few of them. They're all like, talking, oh, I couldn't get in. Or, oh, I heard that if you managed to get a code that your, your, uh, your pin sets reserved. It was like this, it was the wild, wild west for a couple of hours there. <laughs> like it just, it just felt like this weird, like communal anger around this pin set thing. But I will say at the end of it all, I did manage to secure a pin set. So my persistence was rewarded. Well, I'm glad you were able to secure one. I wound up taking a nap and oversleeping a little bit. And yeah, just a couple hours after they went live, I I mean, they were just completely gone. And again, we're talking about a pin set. We're talking yep. about just a set of pins from Mario's first few adventures, but they immediately became this absolute must-have need to get item and from what i saw scalpers were just having a field day there was a scalper that 
in the and it's not like this anymore. But there was a scalper that I saw on eBay, like while this was all going on, all this craziness, who had them listed for I kid you not, ten thousand dollars. <laughs> like, excuse me. It's just, it's nuts. And I mean, Nintendo collectibles always get this way. That's like the huge problem with Nintendo collectibles is the, the people scalping them and, and like the, the scarcity of them, they never make enough. And then the way they handle a promotion like this, it was really poorly handled. I thought, cause for me, I even, I talked about this on Twitter with a few folks. I'm like, why not just set up a virtual queue where you, you go through a queue and you get like five minutes or whatever, or 10 minutes or whatever the case may be to, you know, check out. It doesn't take long to do. All you have to do, because the thing's free, all you have to do is add it to your cart. You do pay for shipping. It's like $5 for shipping or whatever, but that's about it. So, I don't know. It, it was a huge bummer, the way they handled it, but, you know, the end result, I, you know, it does suck. I, I, I wish you could have gotten your hands on them, too, but they, they sold out so fast. The only reason I was able to get them is because I literally wasted, like, two and a half hours of my life <laughs> of my uh, finite time on this earth to secure these pins. But, you know, being an amiibo freak has prepared me for that mentally. It is insane just the hype level around Nintendo products. Like, people who are yep. Nintendo fans, like you and I, like, even we don't compare to some people out there in terms of, you know, just absolute must-have, everything Nintendo branded. I need it in my face right now. And when th this whole situation kind of reminds me, as a matter of fact, of when Super Smash Brothers was released on the 3DS. If mm -hmm. you remember, you got a few download codes from Club Nintendo, and you forwarded one of them to me. Yep. So uh, you and I actually got to play Super Smash Brothers, the demo by the way, the four-character one-stage demo for Super Smash Brothers. Actually, I think it had more than a one-stage, but still, it was just a demo for Super Smash Brothers on the 3DS. Just this little thing that was going to be released to the public a week later. So I posted on Facebook, my personal Facebook, that... You know, something to the effect of if anybody was worried about the game not controlling as well on the 3DS, don't worry. It controls beautifully. Right. Uh, and of course, because I said that, everybody obviously knew that I had one of those early codes. I had people I had never met in my <laughs> life sending me wow. random messages on Facebook, making weird, bizarre back alley offers for me. Uh, I had some guy that I'd never met literally just sent me three word message Netflix for code question mark. <laughs> What's that even mean? And it was just crazy. People again, I'd never met before had no clue who they were. were sending me Facebook messages saying, what do you want for a code? And you know, you get on, you got on eBay, you got online, people were selling their spare codes for upwards of $80 for that. For yeah. one week, early access to a demo, people were paying twice the price of the full game. And I just, it's like, that blew my mind. Don't get me wrong. In terms of marketing for a franchise, there is more hype behind Smash Brothers than arguably any other franchise on the planet. With the exception of maybe like Marvel. Maybe, with the exception of maybe Marvel, but... I mean, even with that level of hype, the fact that 
you know, people were going that nuts that you're contacting yeah. complete strangers, making random, like almost drug deal style offers uh, with people you don't even know. People paying again twice the price of the full game just to get one week early access to a demo version of the game. Like that's kind of what this pin situation reminded me of a little bit. And it just yeah. it blows my mind how how nuts these situations can get. Again, it's just a pin set. Yeah, it's a really nice pin set. And I really would have liked to have had one. But at the end of the day, it's a pin set. I like I got to a point where when when it initially had sold out and I thought I wasn't gonna get one, I sort of made peace with it. You know, I I do I've been fortunate and persistent enough to have acquired some fairly rare Nintendo collectibles over the years. And I mean, I've got, I've had so many people, uh, I, I have legitimately probably had about six or seven offers for my Amiibo collection that are people throwing out numbers that are just like crazy. And I'm not even a new inbox collector. Like, just like you said, random people that I've never even spoken to have messaged me asking to, to buy my Amiibo collection. I mean, it is nuts. And I've got some sealed, like, I'll give you an example. I've got a sealed uh, Super Mario Galaxy, I think, soundtrack, like a CD soundtrack from Club Nintendo. That alone, I think, goes for anywhere between $50 and $100 just for this little free CD that I had. <laughs> so it's nuts. Well, that was a bit of a, a news story in and of itself from this past week. So how about we at least make it official and, you know, Get into the news proper, Seth. How about that? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. Hey, listen. So just as a quick PSA before we get into the news proper, uh, yes, we are aware that TGS Tokyo Game Show is going on right now, uh, including the big Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity blowout. Of course, the, our episodes go live on the same day they're doing all of this, so it's not possible for us to cover in this week's episode. But make no mistake, dear listener, there will be full coverage next week on the show and i'm looking forward to it i can't wait to see more from that game another quick psa uh they did announce that the game awards for this year is going to be happening on december 10th 2020 i'm assuming it's an online event this year uh i haven't admittedly i had i don't think there's that much to know about it yet i don't think full details have been revealed but i will say nintendo usually shows up to this we we in the past have gotten some fairly substantial Nintendo news as part of the Game Awards. So might be something for Nintendo fans to keep their eye on and for gaming fans in general. I'll certainly be interested in watching the Game Awards this year just because of the state of video game releases in 2020. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see if they just go the route of having the same five games in every category or if indie games are really going to show up this year because of the lack of you know, major releases. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we certainly saw a fair bit of indie game love at last year's show, but I'm, I'm always interested to see the way that these big, you know, trade shows handle their business in the year of COVID in the year of the pandemic. I mean, everybody has sort of had to recalibrate and figure this thing out. So it'll be interesting to see how an award show tackles it. So it'll be something to watch, you know, it'll be something to keep an eye on. And, and like I said, Nintendo typically shows up to this thing with something. So we'll definitely be tuning in. Now, another company that also very much shows up to those and most other big events is Bethesda. Now, mm -hmm. 
their presence is probably going to be very different from here on out because despite the fact that this is not directly related to Nintendo, we absolutely had to report on the fact that in a blockbuster deal this past week, Microsoft has acquired, I think behind EA, the second biggest third-party video game publisher in the industry for a whopping $7.5 billion. Yep. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Now... Microsoft did very arguably have a problem with exclusives during especially the last half of the Xbox One's lifespan. So I I assume this is kind of what, you know, has motivated this buy is to try to secure a lot of blockbuster to make a lot of big, notable game franchises, first party franchises. Now, what does this mean for Nintendo moving forward? Uh, obviously games like Doom and Doom Eternal, games like Fallout, games like uh, Elder Scrolls, they have seen releases on the Switch. Obviously Skyrim was, was Skyrim was a launch title, right? Uh, I think it was just after, but it was, it was launch window. Yeah. But yeah, we have seen Skyrim on there again. Doom, Doom Eternal has been on there. So we've even speculated in the past on this episode about potentially even seeing a Fallout collection like Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas coming as a collected bundle on the Nintendo Switch. With this deal, it looks like, A, that's probably not going to happen. And B, it looks like any Bethesda game showing up on the Nintendo Switch might uh, might be a long shot from now on. So... I mean, it was really nice to have a lot of those games on the go. Granted, you know, the Switch wasn't the most powerful version of those games, but they still sold well. They were still good additions to the Switch's library. And of course, Bethesda is, again, such a massive publisher uh, to basically just yank that entire catalog Almost like what they did with Rare, essentially, just to yank that entire catalog out from the gaming landscape. And Microsoft's just over in the corner saying, this is mine now. You can't have it. Yeah, so I've got a bit of a hot take, I guess, on this one. Um, Because the Rare comparison, I think, is a little tricky because the the difference between what they've done with Bethesda or what they're, you know, what they've done here in this, in this buyout and what they did with rare is they actually bought rare to become a first party Xbox game studios studio. And the differences here is that Microsoft actually just purchased Zenimax media, which is the parent company of Bethesda. So Bethesda is not necessarily, even though they're owned by Microsoft, they're not necessarily an Xbox game studio studio at the moment. At least they have come out and said that they are going to be honoring all of their current uh, slated releases. So things like, for example, I think Deathloop that they had coming out and uh, Ghostwire Tokyo were both going to be PS5 timed console launches. That is actually still in effect. Those are still going to launch with timed exclusivity for PlayStation 5's, Microsoft's direct competitor, right? So that's already strange. Um, they've also said in regards to future exclusivity that their titles and the way they're going to handle that is going to differ on a case by case basis. I don't think I, I saw a lot of people. I had a lot of people reach out to me over this past week because this is obviously huge news and everybody's not sure what to think of it. And I don't think that this means that like all of a sudden Bethesda games aren't going to show up on other platforms because Microsoft's strategy is I don't think that they're super concerned 
about software. I don't think that there is, it, they are concerned about it, but it's not at the forefront of their strategy. What Microsoft is trying to sell everybody is Game Pass. Game Pass is Microsoft's big, big thing right now. It is very consumer friendly. It, they're basically, they're trying to create the Netflix of video games, right? And, you know, not for nothing, a, a number that a lot of people aren't talking about is the amount of growth Game Pass has seen in this year alone. At the beginning of this year, they were sitting at less than 10 million Game Pass subscribers. They are now at some 16 million Game Pass subscribers. And the big news to come out of this buyout isn't like, oh, hey, is, is it possible that maybe, you know, Elder Scrolls 6 is only going to be on Xbox? It's, hey, the Xbox version of that game is going to be day and date on Game Pass. That's huge. Bethesda games from now on are going to be day one released on Game Pass. So... Microsoft doesn't necessarily need to, you know, to, to take the ball away from Sony and Nintendo because people are going to be playing it on Xbox anyway. Why kill that extra revenue stream for no reason? Because a lot of people are going to gravitate towards the Xbox version of the, those games anyway, because they've got a strong box that they already have. It's included with the game pass that a lot of people already have. And if they don't have it, they're probably going to buy it just to play these games on it. It's it's a really smart business strategy. They're probably going to quadruple those Game Pass numbers just from Bethesda alone. I think that's the play here. I don't think that they're going to take exclusivity away. And when you look at the comparative deal that Microsoft made to purchase Mojang and Minecraft, which is the biggest video game of all time, <laughs> they didn't just suddenly yank that away from PlayStation and Nintendo. You know what I mean? They, on the contrary, they released future games, Minecraft Dungeons, on the competitive platforms. So I think they're going to be really similarly positioned with Bethesda. I think it's going to be one of those things where you're going to want to play it on Xbox, but they're not going to kill the revenue stream on the other consoles. I don't know. We will see. I could certainly see them. Uh, I could certainly see it being another situation like Rare, where we had to wait seemingly, you know, 58,000 years for them to release anything resembling rare replay when they've been sitting on that catalog for so long. But yeah. I hope it's more of a situation like the Minecraft situation. Again, we'll see the point. The entire point of the story is now that ball is in Microsoft's court. It is. That ball is really not in Bethesda's court anymore. Uh, so, yeah. and frankly, that that's potentially industry shifting. So, be very interested to see how that plays out, especially going into the later part, uh, especially going into the end of 2020 and into 2021. Yeah, and as it relates to Nintendo, on the docket for Switch, the only thing, if I'm not mistaken, I think the only thing we still currently know about from Bethesda's slate is that Doom Eternal is still coming to Switch probably yes. pretty soon. So, But otherwise, yeah, I mean, Skyrim did really well on Switch. We've got Fallout Shelter on Switch. Wolfenstein is on Switch. I think they're going to continue to support it as long as they can. But again, this could be a huge, huge deal. I mean, regardless, just on the face of it, I mean, this is a historic dollar amount. I mean, yeah. that's 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 huge. Uh, I mean, that's that's almost twice as much as Disney played uh, paid for Star Wars. I mean, that's crazy. So yes, seven point five billion dollars to acquire billion with a B. Yeah. <laughs> It's a big deal, man. Well, we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on it. I, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what they do. Yeah, and speaking of keeping an eye on something, some eagle-eyed folks on Nintendo's website caught wind of a, 
uh, you know, the fact that Nintendo leaked their own game, <laughs> they noticed on the Play Nintendo website, there is a drop down of available Switch games, I think under like the family section or something like that. And there's a mysterious little listing for Kirby Fighters 2. And it's like, oh, hang on. This game doesn't exist. <laughs> or at least this game has not been announced by Nintendo yet. So, and of course, then the next day it was shadow dropped and, and you know, available now for 1999. And this is the mysterious game that you and I alluded to. We've both spent a little bit of time with Kirby Fighters 2 after it was actually officially, you know, made real, made manifest on the eShop. Uh, so, yeah, what are your initial thoughts with it? I, again, kind of a weird situation because obviously it was quote unquote announced. It was revealed. And then within 24 hours, it was yeah. basically just like Nintendo said, uh, fine, go ahead and put it out. And within 24 hours of the leak, it was available to download and play on the Nintendo eShop. And with a full like five minute launch explanation trailer. But I've got yeah. to say, I really like it. For $20 especially, I really, really like it. Now, the, the first Kirby Fighters was basically just an extension of the Kirby Fighters minigame from, uh, I think, Triple Deluxe. Yes, I think that's right. So the first one was just an extension, essentially, of that minigame mode. However, this feels like a proper, you know, game. Now, it's not like a full-size release, but it is essentially a Smash Brothers version of Kirby. And that's, you know, kind of what it was meant to be in the first place as a minigame form. But right. it's got, like, I think, 17 different Kirby power-ups. But in addition to that, there's five other Kirby characters. There's like 20 stages. There's a like a story mode. There's an arcade mode. And it looks like it's running off the, uh, the graphics engine, the engine from Star Allies from a couple years ago on the Switch. So... I mean, it looks really good. If you have somehow gotten tired of Smash Brothers, this would be uh, another game kind of very much in that same ilk. Uh, I did play a few online matches. I did have a couple really bad connections, but I did have some mm. really good connections as well. So I had an overall very okay. positive experience online, even on day one, which I think is important. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. I haven't actually played online yet, but I have spent a good amount of time with the single player component. I think it's called like the, was it the destined? Uh, destined Rivals or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Destined Rivals or whatever. It's very, very bare bones. It's essentially a fighting games like arcade mode, right? Very straightforward, uh, but it's a fun little distraction. It's a, it's this game is exactly what it is. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's twenty dollars. Don't don't expect some meaty, full fledged Kirby adventure or anything like that. But it is, yeah, it's a Kirby fighting game, and you've got a huge swath of Kirby's you know famous copy abilities that are all used to good effect. You've got a actually a really robust selection of stages to play on. Some yeah. of which are really cool because they reference like old Kirby games, which I thought was nice. And yeah, I mean like I, I'm pretty happy with it for it just being a little $20 thing. There's a mechanic behind it that I think some folks might not like the idea that you actually have to rank up your level in order to unlock the copy abilities, which are essentially playable characters and then also the different like skins for the various copy abilities. But uh, I, I like, I think you and I talked off mic. 
I like the act of unlocking things. I like the slow burn. I do. I mean, you and I grew up in the era where that's how you got stuff. There was no, there was no concept of DLC. If there was other characters in the game, you had to unlock them either through gameplay or through a code or something. And by the way, they could have easily made this like free to play and just riddled it with microtransactions and they didn't. So yeah, good point because they have done that a couple times with stuff like Kirby Clash. Yeah. They they could have gone that route and they and they didn't, so I respect it. I respect it for that. Now, a lot of the younger listeners out there might a lot of you are probably just used to having everything unlocked from the beginning. So when you get into Kirby Fighters 2 and you see that only 3 or 4 characters are available and you actually have to play the game to unlock the vast majority of the content, uh, gasp. I, I know it may turn a few people off, but I really, really enjoy that. Just like in Smash Brothers Ultimate, when you only had the base roster of characters and you had to play through to unlock the rest of them. I really enjoyed that aspect I of the game. I loved that. Yeah, loved it. Was it. In- incredibly rewarding. And uh, this is basically a lot more of the same. So doesn't surprise me that we're seeing a product like this from Hal Laboratory, Sakurai's old baby. So yeah. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask, uh, have you had a chance to mess around with the wrestler ability yet? A little bit. Uh, I Not too, too much. I did, when I tried to play online, I did go with stuff that I was more familiar with because, right. you know, I was trying to actually win a match or two, which I did. <laughs> but I'm uh, very, very excited to, to actually check out the wrestler ability. Again, for anybody who doesn't know, I am a big pro wrestling fan. And I am very interested to see what other potential skins you can unlock for that wrestler copy ability. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that'd be cool. That's that's actually the new one that they've added for this game. And it's sort of like a it's it's really cool. I, I like it a lot. Actually, it's got a lot of like versatility to its moveset. I actually found myself really liking it. But you got the, you know, virtually every copy ability that Kirby's had throughout his history is is present in this game. So in some way or another. And then the various skins are kind of fun and cute. And I, I don't know. I, I just, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, for, for $20, I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad yeah. at it at all. And it's been a couple of years since we've had a proper Kirby adventure. So if you are a big Kirby fan, this will definitely hold you over for a little while as we continue to wait on Star Allies 2 or whatever Kirby's next adventure is going to be. But yeah, right. I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I enjoyed quite a bit. I can see myself putting quite a bit of time into it, not just to unlock everything. But again, I I enjoyed the matches I had online. They were very chaotic. Right. But right. they were still enjoyable. And at the end of the day, that's what a game should be. We got to we gotta link up at some point and play some uh, 2v2 stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. But speaking of fighting games, speaking of the Super Smash Brothers comparison, we actually, and even speaking of eagle-eyed Nintendo fans, you, know, you can't sneak anything past us, man. <laughs> There's been an advertisement that has cropped up at Japanese retailers advertising the Smash Brothers Ultimate Fighters Pass 2. And this actually has kind of happened in the past. It's got a notice on the bottom of the ad that the ad is going to be replaced on October 4th. Uh, So the last time this happened, it was because Nintendo announced a new fighter just before that date where the ad was going to be replaced to get like replaced with a new ad that showed the new fighter. I think it was before Terry, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so, yeah, this could imply that we might know about the next fighter sometime between now and October 4th. Well, if that's the case, this would be the perfect time to announce that Monster Hunter fighter. 
It would, yeah. I, I sort of feel like we're probably going to get one more before then, but maybe not. I mean, I, I'm, I have this like, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I, I pitched the idea to you that maybe we could get Impa from Hyrule Warriors, uh, Age of Calamity, like the younger Impa. So that'd be kind of cool if we had like a an announcement in this in this thing that's happening, you know, today at the time you're listening to this, but we haven't we haven't been able to see it yet, obviously. But if if during this TGS showcase they they showed that revealed this character properly, and oh by the way, she's also the next Smash Fighter, that'd be pretty legit. I don't know that that's what's going to happen, but that's my wild thought. Well, in our very first episode, we actually counted down the top five characters we would love to see come to Smash Brothers. So. Now we have, looks like we're finally going to have a chance to see how right we were. Definitely go back to first episode, check that list out. Let us know what you think and what characters you are hoping to see round out the rest of Fighters Pass 2. But I mean, again, it's Smash Brothers, as I've already mentioned. It's just an unstoppable hype train. So there's, I mean, there's going to be a bunch of people excited regardless I mean, hey, this time next week, there, there's a very real chance we might know who the next Smash Fighter is. It's been, I, I know this might come off as shocking, but it's already been several months since Min Min came out. I know that's oh, weird. God. That's so crazy. <laughs> but I'm planning on going five for five on my Smash Brothers predictions from episode one. <laughs> I, I, I'm i looking forward to really just seeing whoever it is. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, But yeah. Some sometime maybe between now and October fourth, maybe we'll know. So maybe, maybe Sakurai will bless us. <laughs> <laughs> Blessed Heo Sakurai. <laughs> but another weird thing that sort of happened. Speaking of like things that we uh, that we don't know about yet, it was really weird that we're seeing all of this evidence that the Prince of Persia: Sands of Time remake is going to be happening and coming to the Switch, but Ubisoft has said nothing about it. Now, this is despite the fact that after they initially announced it in the Ubisoft Forward earlier this month, somebody did some data mining on the game's website and found evidence that a Switch version is listed on there. But now, we're seeing retailers pop up with official box art for the Switch version of the game. So what's going on here? The way Nintendo's been marketing for, you know, months now with these kind of piecemeal directs and with these weird interspersed announcements, it would not surprise me at all if we finally got the official Switch announcement at a potential October partner showcase. Obviously, we just had the one with Monster Hunter, but I mean, the way things are going right now, the next partner showcase could very well showcase the Sands of Time remake and even potentially Doom Eternal. So yeah. Yeah, I think the writing's on the wall a little bit there. Yeah, so with, ad- admittedly, with the way the Sands of Time remake looks, there's no reason <laughs> it shouldn't come to a Nintendo Switch because, frankly, it's not the most impressive looking remake. Hey, I I love that game anyway. As long as they don't mess with the gameplay, I'm good. I, I thought the original version looked really pretty, so I don't think you need to mess with it too much. That's my concern is I think they might be. Yeah, based on the trailer, I, I watched their trailer at Ubisoft Forward, and I, I'm worried. I'm definitely worried, but but we'll see. I mean, I hope it comes to Switch. That would definitely be my preferred place to to play it, and there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it will. It's just weird that Ubisoft's been so cagey about it, but but I think you might be onto something there. I think that it would totally make sense for there to be a partner showcase with that game, uh, getting a little bit of a spotlight. So I could totally see it. 
Well, what do you guys think? If the Prince of Persia Sands of Time remake comes to the Nintendo Switch, is that the system you're going to pick it up on? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. Whatever service you're listening to our wonderful little podcast on, do make sure to subscribe to All In. Thank you so much for your patronage. Thank you so much for listening to our little labor of love. And again, let us know what you think about the Prince of Persia remake. Absolutely. One last bit of news I got here. Really, really quick one. But a lot of folks were sort of worried that maybe Bravely Default 2 was going to miss 2020 with COVID and everything. It was kind of up in the air. We hadn't heard really anything of it. I think we got a demo for the game like earlier this year, but I think that was the last time we really got an update on Bravely Default 2. Well, I'm happy to say that the game has been officially rated, received an M rating uh, by the ESRB which means that the game is done. So the games get rated when the content is actually complete. And so the game is finished. So it seems like there's no real reason it shouldn't make it in 2020. And maybe we'll even get that in a partner showcase. That seems perfect for a partner showcase. Well, I mean, we'll certainly see. It was looking for a time that it was just going to be Bravely Default 2 and Pikmin 3 Deluxe to round out the rest of this year's releases for Nintendo. But now... Like It feels like there's so much coming out for Nintendo that it wouldn't have surprised me at all if Bravely Default 2 had been pushed back into 2021. So uh, Bravely Default, especially when it comes to JRPGs, is kind of an unassuming franchise. The people that do play it absolutely love it. Critical darling. But it has certainly not really garnered the same reputation as something like a Dragon Quest or a Final Fantasy. And I just, I worry, I do worry about it getting lost in the shuffle which again, I'm surprised I'm even saying that now. (laughs) Yeah, earlier this year, it didn't seem like that was going to be a worry, but I I think what they'll probably do with this, Nintendo is sort of, they love to slot in these JRPGs in December, so I wouldn't be the least bit shocked if we get an October partner showcase where they're like, hey, Doom Eternal, hey, Prince of Persia, oh, and by the way, Bravely Default 2 is still very much a thing, and it's coming in December. So we'll see. But that's sort of what I'm thinking. Round out the year, hopefully ended on a high note. The the folks that love that game love that game, you know. Yeah. So I I never got into them, but I uh, but you know, happy for the fans if that is the case. Well, Bravely Default has always been kind of a throwback JRPG, as many of the other franchises have continued to evolve and you know get new mechanics. There has always been. Uh, I don't want to call them purists, but there has always been fans of the more traditional style turn-based JRPGs. And the Bravely Default series has definitely catered to those old school fans. And I am admittedly one of them. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely, I love the games that Bravely Default takes its cues from. So who knows? Maybe the Switch effect will kick in and, and this may, you know, maybe I'll dive into the, to the series for the first time. So speaking of old school games like Bravely Default, we have an old school style game to talk about this week in our indie showcase. Seth, you ready to get into it? I'm ready to get into it. All right, let's talk about Super Punch Patrol. So obviously we're talking this week in our indie showcase about the recently released Super Punch Patrol, released the day before Super Mario 3D All-Stars, came out on September 17th, and uh, I mentioned it briefly, I believe last week when we were talking about what we had done recently. Right. Well, now that you and I have both had some time to put into the game, we felt that we would give it a proper spotlight. Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, now's the the best time to do it. Obviously, 
unfortunately, <laughs> Mario 3D All-Stars comes out right around the same time, you're inevitably going to be a little overshadowed. So we definitely wanted to shine a light on this game because it's it's good. I, I like it a lot for what it is. I really do too. It feels like a lot of beat-em-ups are just kind of coagulating here at the end of the year, almost out of nowhere. But I don't hate it. Hey, I, no complaints from me. Uh, I mean, there's been so many, so many good ones over the years, and it just feels like nobody's been doing them anymore. So to see this, I don't want to say resurgence, but it, it it feels almost like the genre is going out of its way to remind people that they exist and that they can make and that people can make good games within the genre. And uh, Super Punch Patrol, I think, is just another really good example of that. Yeah, I mean, this one in particular takes, I think, a lot of like the actual arcade inspiration. Like This one doesn't even just feel like a more modern beat-em-up. This actually feels like a beat-em-up arcade experience on your Switch. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we'll get into this more here in just a few minutes. But very much like Shovel Knight, this game definitely wears its inspirations very far down its sleeve. Oh, yeah. And if you were a fan of beat-em-ups in the early 90s, in the arcades, you are going to see some things that are very, very familiar to you. Very familiar to you. Maybe even to the game's detriment a little bit, but we'll get into it. <laughs> but Super Punch Patrol comes to us from Swedish game developer, and we actually researched how to pronounce this. <laughs> we did. <laughs> but we're just two dumb Americans, so if we butcher this, I, I sincerely apologize. But Super Punch Patrol comes to us from Swedish-born developer Bertil Herberg? I, I, I think, from, from what I understand... The O with the umlaut over it is supposed to have like a long A sound C. I think it's like Herberg or something like that. So yeah, again, apologies if we've mispronounced that. We really did try. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. A developer who gave us Gunman Clive 1 and 2 and another 2D shooter called Mextermination Force. Yeah. Uh, decided he would branch off into beat-em-ups this year. Uh, did take... His, and I mentioned this uh, last week, did take his visual style, his visual aesthetic from the Gunman Clive games and transposed it over Super Punch Patrol. And if you've never seen the Gunman Clive games, the visual motif for this developer is very much a pencil sketch kind yeah. of rendered in 3D. A very, very unique visual style. Yeah, and I mean, like you said last week, I don't think it's ever looked better than it does here. No, it looks absolutely fantastic. The way... The 3D models, like, it looks like they're 3D models, but the way that they are rendered is just really, really unique. It doesn't, it's not 2D. The, the, the models actually have depth to them, especially when you're traversing the level and you see the elements, the background elements. It's not just a static background. No, the elements are clearly layered. Like you've got cars, and then you've got buildings behind them which do move uh, across the background at different speeds, depending on where you are in the background. And I, you know, I'm not really explaining that very well, but it is very clear that there is depth there. There are multiple layers of elements. It's not just like somebody sketched a background and you're just walking across somebody's white page pencil sketch. Yeah. It, I mean, it is tough to explain it. They are 3d models, but they, yeah, they have this pencil sketch, look to it the the background is always sort of moving a little bit to get, kind of give it that rough sketch feel 
the only actually the uh, the only corollary I can think of to this game, besides of course Gunman Clive, his other series, is a game that was on PlayStation called Drawn to Death. That's another game that that kind of has that sort of sketch style with 3D models. But again, uh, if you're interested, do a quick uh, search on the eShop and and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. It's a really, really unique style that I think really pops and and really looks good here. Yeah, the the color palette is pretty minimalist. You've got your whites, your grays, and then kind of a dark gray. But you have blue like a blue colored pencil, which is used for the good guys. And then a red colored pencil, which is used for basically everything that can hurt you. I love that. I thought that was so brilliant the way it's so simple, right? It's such a simple piece of visual design, just simply having like the, the kind of blue sketch overlay on yourself, the player character and the things that you can interact with in a positive way. And then to have the red overlay over the things that can hurt you, including enemies environmental things. I I thought that was super, super smart. Yeah. Even the weapons that you can pick up, like, you know, it's a beat em up. So, you know, there are weapons you can pick up, right? Even those have that blue overlay. So even when enemies are holding onto them, they still have that blue overlay, but it is a very minimalist color palette. It's a very interesting visual style, but it, it works. It just works. I think it looks really, really good. Now, in terms of the game's narrative, (laughs) <laughs> again if you've ever played a beat em up in the early 90s exactly <laughs> uh, i do really like one thing this game does it's a small touch admittedly but uh, the only way you even really get a story is if you let the main screen the main menu screen sit right. for just a few minutes for people who played video games back in the late 80s early 90s that was oftentimes how you got any information, like very much in the arcades, how the screen would continue to transition from different things in the game, you know, continue to flash different screens to try to grab people's eye. A lot of the home releases also had certain things that would pop up if you left the main menu or the main title screen on long enough. And sure enough, Super Punch Patrol is one of those games, very much a throwback in a way that many of the elements in the game are. So... Uh, the narrative is bad guys are doing bad things. Good guys trying to do good things. Basically. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really about as deep as it goes. Right. And that's, that's honestly all you really need. It's, it's a beat up, man. It's, it's an old school arcade beat up. You don't need to know any more than that. I do really appreciate the extra little touch of having the characters bios flash by the screen as well. Yes. So just that little extra little bit of flavor text, they didn't have to put that in there, but it's it's one of those things that really helps sell the idea of this being an early 90s style arcade beat-em-up and a very welcome addition. Again, a small thing, but it's, it's those details. I mean, one of the things that I'll say a lot about game design or about design in any form of medium is it's not hard to make something good, but it's the details that can make something great. Right. Right. Just little things like that can help elevate a title. So, yeah, totally. And and I mean, this game knows exactly what it is. You know, this game. Oh, yes. The one thing that I will say, if nothing else, this game completely illustrates its intent in every facet of what it is. It knows exactly what it is. And it it just is completely focused on being that thing. Now, while I do like 
the visual style. I do have to admit that the character designs themselves do feel a bit like they're just somewhat generic amalgamations of characters from other popular arcade beat-em-ups of the time. So, uh-huh. and again, this is probably a phrase we'll say a couple times over the next 10, 15 minutes. But if you were a fan of Final Fight, if you were a fan especially of Streets of Rage, you will see some very familiar elements in here, especially in terms of the character designs. Uh, again, that a lot of the character designs just feel like kind of an approximation of several characters from different series that were just kind of thrown together. And I mean, it doesn't really need to be any more than that. You beat up so many goons within any given playthrough that, you know, ultimately if somebody had an extra chain hanging off their waist or an extra divot in their hat, it wouldn't really matter anyway. They're just nameless goon number 35 and nameless goon number 36 to most people. But even as far as the main characters are concerned, there's three characters, three playable characters in the game. You have Nils, you have Selma, and then you have Anders. Nils is kind of the the token white guy. You've got Selma, the token female, and then you've got Anders, the big token black guy grappler character, who he's my favorite. I, I seem to gravitate toward those big grappler type characters anyway, but... He just felt so fun to play in this game. Yeah, no, I, I liked him a lot too. He ended up being my favorite playable character too. But they, they've all got, you know, when you're talking about the gameplay, they, they've definitely all got their kind of niche and, and corollaries. And again, this is something we're going to talk about a lot as we get into it. But it definitely has its roots in something like Streets of Rage, right? Where you've got Anders, who is basically Max. Yep. You know, you've got Nils, who's basically Axel. And you've got Selma, who is basically Blaze, right? So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, even down to specific animations? I mean, yeah. And that is something, again, if you're a fan of these old arcade-style beat-em-ups, uh, even going as far as some of the animations the characters use will seem very familiar to you. Again, this game very much wears its inspirations on its sleeve. Now, that is not to say the game... It, is not fun to play that it's not well designed in its own right far from it. Uh, And this was another thing I was talking to you about Seth is I initially thought the game was quite a bit more shallow than it actually is. There is a little bit of depth to it. The characters don't have expansive move rosters. You don't have 20, 30 different attacks a character can do, but you have all the, you have all the attacks that you would need to do with a little bit of extra flair thrown in there. Yeah, I mean the game is very simple, right? It's it's very much like the one of those old school arcade beat 'em up experiences where you yeah, like you said, you don't need an expansive 20 move move set or anything like that. The the game is just it, it is exactly what it is. I mean, and and that's either you can either take it or leave it. You know what I mean? If you like these kind of games like Streets of Rage, you can definitely see that influence and uh and man like th- that actually I think is probably what what you and I were talking about this game. That's probably the main thing. If I had any real complaint, I even I struggle to even really call it a complaint. It's it's more so just an observation of like how much this game takes from Streets of Rage. Like this game really even in the enemy types, like you've got that classic coming at you with a knife. <laughs> you know, enemy type from yep. Streets of Rage. 
You've got, like I said earlier, you've got specific animations straight up lifted from Streets of Rage. Yeah, the the fat enemy that rolls at you actually does a right. bell roll. To, even that character is here in Super Punch Patrol. So again, I'm I'm not specifically going to use the word derivative. I'll choose to use the word love letter. Sure, yeah. And it is. I mean, you you definitely I mean, you do you do get the sense like this is definitely a love letter. I I was using this point to illustrate to you when we were talking about the game uh off mic. But when I was younger, I I would read like uh Captain Underpants books, the scholastic books that you would get from the book fair and whatnot. And I would do I I liked those books so much yeah. that I would kind of do my own version of it. And that's what this feels like. This feels like the developer really loves Streets of Rage and he sort of did his own version of Streets of Rage. And maybe that involves lifting elements from it, but it is sort of his version of that and his love letter to that. So again, th- this game definitely wears its intent and wears its influences very much on its sleeve. It's even got the Streets of Rage risk reward mechanic of costing health in order to use a special ability or a special move. So it takes yep. that also. Now, I will say one thing that does seem to be a lot more pronounced in this game in terms of the gameplay mechanic is another thing, just like a lot of those old arcade beat-em-ups, this game is not easy. If this were a coin-up oh. arcade beat-em-up, it would definitely be munching a lot of quarters. Yes. And it actually, they make specific reference to that. There, are, There is the concept of credits in this game, which is kind of fun. Oh, yes. You've got your lives and then you've got your continues again, just like those old early 90s games. But uh, once you understand the flow of the game, because the AI is kind of relentless, you've got these characters who have their different attack patterns. Obviously, they will surround you. They won't just all of them walk up to the front and, you know, line up very nice and orderly for you. A lot of them will straight up try to surround you consistently, but... The dodge mechanic in this game, if you want to play the game on anything above practice level difficulty, you will need to get very familiar with the dodge mechanic. And it is thankfully something that you can cancel into. Now, canceling an attack is very fighting game style lingo, but what it essentially means is in the middle of an attack animation, you can cancel that animation into a dodge without the animation, without the attack animation having to finish. So, yeah, if you if you don't sort of reckon with that idea and sort of wrap your brain around it, you're not going to like cause this game. Just as you said, I mean, you're getting enemies from every which direction. So if you're beaten up on somebody and then another character is trying to come behind you and grab you, if you do not have that sort of mental foresight and to, to be able to quickly cancel an animation, and then dodge up or down you're you're just not going to have a good time. And I do appreciate that. I do too. It doesn't feel like a mechanic that's really pronounced in a lot of the, a lot of other beat 'em ups that I've played. Uh so if you really want to get good, you will have to accept the fact that in many cases you won't be able to do full combos every time. You may have to just do single jab or two jabs and then dodge up out of the way and then maybe right. try to reposition yourself for another follow-up attack. But yeah, if you're going to try to play on anything bigger, or anything higher than practice difficulty, definitely learn that dodge maneuver. And also, another thing that will help you is having a friend. Yeah, I really wanted to play this in co-op with my wife. I never got a chance to, uh, but 
you could definitely tell that this game is designed with local co-op play in mind, which the game definitely supports for two players. Yes, the game throws a ton of enemies at you, a ton of enemies that were very much specifically meant to have more than one person tackling at a time. Now you can obviously play the game in single player, but local co-op, as with so many other different games, especially beat-em-ups, local co-op is going to be the way to go if you've got a friend or spouse or little brother or sister around to play with. Uh, It is two-player co-op. The game doesn't get crazy and have like four playable characters on screen at the same time. And... For this option, there is actually no online multiplayer component for a reason that we'll get into here in just a minute at the end of the showcase. But if you do want to play multiplayer, it is going to be a local multiplayer affair. Uh, That being said, though, for what it is, uh, the game is long enough, in my opinion, and it does offer multiple replays. The game itself does feel good enough to play regardless multiple times through. I think the game just feels that good to play, but it does continue to reward you because (laughs) there are four or five, I think five actually additional costumes to unlock for each of the playable characters. Now, they don't affect the gameplay at all. They're just cosmetic changes. But I mean... You know, extra skins, extra costumes, they're always nice. That always gets people to, to, you know, replay the game a little bit. It drives up interest in the game a little bit. People just love skins and costumes. Oh, it's, a, it's a really great carrot on a stick when you complete your playthrough and you see that sort of like progress bar go up. You're unlocking costumes. They are unlocked at random every time you sort of, I guess, quote unquote, level up, even though there isn't like a leveling system. Uh, you unlock a costume at random and it's just like, yeah, it's a nice carrot on a stick. It's a nice thing to encourage you to repeat playthroughs. And the game is so short and sweet that you want to do it. It, it. it just, like you said, it feels good to play. It's a really easy thing. It's not asking you for your entire day. I mean, you can play through the game really quickly. I would say in under two hours um, for a lot of people, even on a casual level. Um, so it's, it'd be a really great game, especially if you've got, like you said earlier, a younger brother, a sister, a spouse, uh, play it, you know, play it one night with a beer or something like that. And, uh, and I think it's, it'd be a really great local co-op experience. And there are some, you know, that not all the costumes are fantastic, but there are a few costumes that are specifically references to the developers, older gunman Clive games. Oh, so good. I love that they did that. Yeah, I think those costumes are clearly the best. Specifically, you've got for the big beefy grappler character, you have a full size or a, a full body duck costume, which I just think is <laughs> the best. Yeah, excellent. I, I it's it's really cool to see stuff like that. Again, again, these are all just skins. These are not they have no bearing on the gameplay, but it's fun, man. And again, just encourages you to replay. Now it's not a game you're going to wind up putting 50 hours into. However, For the asking price, I certainly think that you are getting more than enough gameplay out of it. Now, the reason uh, I don't think we were given multiplayer, online multiplayer, is because for an asking price of just $5, right? I don't really think that that was going to be feasible. I think that's got a lot to do with it. I I think it's probably a combination of that and wanting to sort of stay true to that couch or arcade experience this game is so slavish to its 
devotion to that experience, you know, to that sort of arcade experience. Again, even to the point of having continues and credits, it did not need to go that deep into it. You know what I mean? But it did. So I, I almost feel like the decision was intentional. I feel like he probably could have included online, could have afforded to keep up a server for the game or something like that if you wanted to. But uh, but yeah, chose not to. And I think the financial uh, implications of it are probably certainly true. But but I think it was also an experiential decision as well. Well, I mean, the Gunman Clive games were also incredibly cheap affairs. They were just a couple yes. dollars a piece themselves, but they still offered you know, a pretty decent sized chunk of game for the asking price. And you've got the exact same thing going on here. I mean, for five bucks, you're getting a beat-em-up around the same size and length that the old arcade beat-em-ups would give you. So, I mean, too hard. it's kind of hard to, to dig on the game too much about that. I mean, obviously, if it were a $30 offering, like, say, the new Streets of Rage game, then yes, the length and the number of playable characters might be something we could mention, but having multiple playable characters with multiple unlockable costumes and a game that can very, very easily be replayed four or five times with a friend and enjoying it the entire time, $5 is an absolute steal. Yeah, I mean, it's so, just like you said, I mean, it's so hard to not recommend a a, a polished experience for what it is. Again, the game just knows exactly what it is. It is a Streets of Rage style beat-em-up arcade game that you can play local co-op with a friend or spouse or whatever, have a good time. It's not overly long. It encourages repeat playthroughs, and it's extremely affordable. I mean, five bucks is such a fair asking price, and same thing with Gunman Clive. I'm looking on the eShop right now. You can get the Gunman Clive HD collection, which is a two-game bundle for $3.99. So, I mean, this guy with his games, he just kind of knows exactly. He sets out to make these short, sweet experiences, doesn't ask for an arm and leg for them. You know what I mean? And, and that's just exactly what it is. So it's super recommendable for that price. And, and that's why I think it makes for a perfect indie showcase for us because we can just recommend it to you guys so, so easily. Oh, yeah. So if you've got five bucks lying around and you need something to hold you over until Scott Pilgrim comes out, or you know you feel like thirty dollars is too much of an asking price for a more contemporary beat 'em up like Streets of Rage, you really can't go wrong with this. Again, very much a love letter to those original arcade beat 'em ups of the early '90s. There's even a very very strong throwback to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh yes, that uh, anybody who knows what we're talking about will immediately get when they see it. But yeah, Super Punch Patrol definitely gets my stamp of approval. Definitely check it out. Uh, and I mean, if you like that, go ahead and check out the Gunman Clive collection also available on the Switch. Yeah, again, both games super affordable and and worth your time. So I agree. Really like them both. But talking about Super Punch Patrol and it's, and, you know, signature visual style the developer is known mm. for, it does make me wonder if they ever decided to do an amiibo of that game, ah. what the amiibos would look like. I don't know. I think they'd be pretty cool. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. It'd be kind of cool to see the way they would work that style into it. Yeah. Well, between 
these new Monster Hunter Amiibos that were announced. Between us talking about Amiibo last week in our top five and all the Smash Brothers Amiibos that are still yet to be released, it did get us thinking about Nintendo's wonderful little figurines. So we thought for this top five, we would actually count down for you our favorite ever. Seth, you ready to count these down? Oh, I'm so ready. Considering like how much you and I both love Amiibo, considering that I'm just an absolute Amiibo freak, hardcore collector since day one. He is. Yeah. It's kind of a miracle that it's taken us this long to do this top five. <laughs> We've been sitting on it for a bit. I think uh, I think it's about time. So I'm excited to get into it. For my number five, just to start off the list, what was really cool for me was... When Amiibo first started, it was very much just the Smash Brothers line. We didn't really know what the series, what the Amiibo series was going to like eventually become. We didn't know how big it was going to get. We didn't know how expansive it was going to get. So when we got the introduction of the Super Mario series line, it was kind of exciting. And it was characters that we already had Amiibo for in the Smash line, but kind of in a different style, kind of in a more clean Super Mario style, a lot of them were bundled with, uh, I think it was Super Mario Party 10, Yep, if I'm not mistaken, on the Wii U. So we got kind of this kind of this nice, clean style. So for my number five, it is the Super Mario series Yoshi figure. Ah! I love this thing. I love it. I It's so, I, it's just the perfect Yoshi design. I love his cute little pose with his little hands up in the air. Like he, he his hands are kind of up, like he almost looks like he's, uh, he almost looks like he's he's like trying to clean a mess or something. Like he's it looks like he's tiptoeing or something. He's very cute. <laughs> very cute pose for this Yoshi. And even with uh, the aesthetic changes that Yoshi has gone through over the past few years, that is still the classic style, the classic looking Yoshi. Yeah, that line just looks like in this Yoshi in particular, this just is the quintessential designs for all these characters. This is just if there is such a thing as a perfect like Yoshi design, that is it. And it just looks so, I don't know, like it's just so simple, but I, I absolutely adore it. And it's just got this like the, the finish on those It almost not a matte finish, but it's got almost like a, a particular feel to it. It's just smooth. And the, the, the plastic, this, this really to me spoke to the beginning of Amiibo just getting better and better. And I really think they have as, as Amiibo has gone on, I think they've just done nothing but improve in quality. And I think this was kind of the first steps to that was the Super Mario line. I, I, I love them all, but Yoshi is definitely a standout for me. I agree. I think the Amiibo have continued to increase in quality over the years. I mean, they started off, they were still good figures when they came out, uh, when they first yeah. started coming out back in 2014 with the release of Smash Brothers Wii U. There was just the weirdness. Like there's the stuff like the pee stick on Link and stuff like that that everybody... Yeah commented on <laughs> yeah but uh for the super mario line and for my number five i think was another kind of small step forward for the amiibo line but when they released metroid samus returns on the 3ds back in 2017 they did release a two-pack amiibo of samus and my number five the metroid oh it's so good i love it yeah, uh, obviously, if anybody's ever held an Amiibo in their hands, the vast, vast majority of them are made with a very firm, very hard style plastic. 
And that is one of the things that does help set the Metroid Amiibo apart is the Metroid's kind of membrane head is made out of a much more malleable style plastic. You can actually kind of dent it in and it feels very alien almost. But squishy. Yeah, it is a little squishy. <laughs> is is a little squishy, like I imagine a little Metroid would be. It's squishy, but it also has like a texture to the plastic. Like it's a, malleable is a good word. Like you can definitely it has a give to it, like if you squeeze it, but it but it has like a texture to the plastic that yeah, feels alien. It's really cool what they were able to do. But another thing for me that really helps set the Metroid amiibo apart is the fact that it's not just a character for the Metroid right. amiibo. They have it almost like a small diorama. It's the Metroid breaking out of its capsule with a little bit of debris around the base. And it was the start of of Nintendo kind of branching off and making these amiibo figures a little bit more dynamic. We also see something like that with the, the Pikmin amiibo that came out with Hey Pikmin, where you have all the different little Pikmin on one, kind of all surrounding this big rock that makes right. up the full amiibo figure. So... Again, it's not just a character. It's like this little diorama, this little 3D screenshot from inside the game. And it just looks so cool. It's so well done. And they're pretty hard to come by. There wasn't too many of them made for the Metroid Samus Returns release. But if you can get your hands on one, oh, it's a great, great figure. Yeah, that's kind of the weird thing uh, with the Amiibo market. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the... Uh, amiibo that we're going to be talking about in this top five a lot of them probably are going to fall on the more expensive side if you want to track them down now that's why i always recommend to folks if they are interested in amiibo i recommend getting in on the ground floor with it try to get it as quickly as possible for msrp as long as i've been collecting amiibo literally from day one there's only been three figures that i paid above msrp for so I, I highly recommend trying to get in as soon as possible on them. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, the Animal Crossing Amiibo, they like way overproduced them and they made them for a game that wasn't very good. So <laughs> you can find them fairly readily for a really good price. And I recommend you do because they're great little figures. Uh, but yes, the, the Metroid Amiibo, super good. That actually, we're going to talk about honorable mentions a little bit later. That was one of mine. I love that that figure so much. My number four is probably, if I can point to any amiibo figure that, that represents its actual in-game counterpart, probably better than any other amiibo figure to date, it is the Link's Awakening Link figure. Man, they did such a phenomenal job with that figure because, you know, for those that don't know, in the Link's Awakening remake for Nintendo Switch, Link has a very sort of, to use a $10 word here, a very sort of plasticine toy-like kind of aesthetic. The entire game does. It very much has that kind of vibe. And with this amiibo, it it looks like, almost like a, if you could think of like a nutcracker or like a Christmas ornament, it's got like that kind of style to it. It's a very shiny plastic. I can see that. Yeah, it is. It does kind of have this almost wooden quality to it. Yeah. This, this plastic, but yet wooden quality to it. It does feel like physically feel a little bit different than most of the other Amiibo. Yeah. I mean, he looks like a little old school toy soldier, just like he does in the game. 
and I absolutely love it. It's it, like having him there on my shelf. Like he just looks, and I, I love his little face. Like he just looks ready, ready to go, like ready for action. And it's so cute. I love the Link's Awakening style. I love what they did with that. And it just, it, it, they just completely nailed it in the amiibo. It's one of those, it's just one of those amiibo that just perfectly captures what the game looks like. And uh, I remember for E3 that year, they had a little diorama at Nintendo's E3 booth for Link's Awakening. And they had a little Link figure in it. And this Link's Awakening amiibo looks like it would fit in just right with an official Nintendo diorama. Like, it's that high quality. It's really good. And I've talking about the visual style of the Link's Awakening remaster. It's It always struck me as if Legend of Zelda were designed by the people who made Earthbound. Yeah, I could see that. It, the uh, The comparison I always made was uh, those old holiday, those old Christmas movies, you know? Yeah. Like Rudolph and uh, Little Little Drummer Boy and stuff, like those old 80s Christmas movies. Yeah, the Rankin-Bass movies, yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> those were actually back in the 60s. Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. They're that old? Yes. Holy moly. I thought they were contemporary when I was watching them as a kid. <laughs> ay ay ay. All right. It uh yeah, but it, it totally has that sort of vibe to it. And uh and yeah, that that's kind of what I got from it. And and it that's the comparison I always make. And they again nail the style in the game and in the amiibo, and, and I love it very, very much. Nineteen sixty four and Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Ay ay ay. <laughs> and one last thing about the Link's Awakening amiibo is that amiibo did allow you to transfer your newly minted custom dungeons uh-huh from your game to your friend's game so currently the only way to share custom made dungeons with your friends hopefully one day they'll expand on that mechanic i'm about to say admittedly i never really messed with that but yes uh for my number four i think we eventually i mean there was just so many smash brothers amiibos uh, i think we were everybody knew we were eventually gonna have to put one on here and for me right. uh again they're most of them are so so great but there is one figure that is for all intents and purposes four amiibo figures in one and from the moment i first got the game and watch smash brothers amiibo Mm. i was like oh this is so cool because if you don't have the smash brothers amiibo the smash brothers game and watch amiibo he comes with four separate basically stand-ins for the base you have his basically normal look but then you have one of his stances that's from the bell game then you have one of his stances from uh where he's got his parachute open and then you've got one of his stances from performing his judge maneuver so they weren't just content to just stick a two-dimensional character into a base for some reason with Mr. Game and Watch, they said, here, have four. So <laughs> whenever I have put them on display, I always, you know, I always change out the base for Mr. Game and Watch. I, you know, I'm actually looking at my other three bases right now. I'm looking at, you know, the bell. I'm looking at the parachute. I'm looking at the judge. And yeah. uh, of course, the uh, Smash Brothers figures, all of the Amiibo are based off of the in-game trophy models that the characters right. have. But with Mr. Game & Watch, they 
for some reason with that one just decided to go above and beyond. And I very much appreciated that easily. My favorite smash brothers amiibo, which is saying something because the smash brothers line has some fantastic figures. They really do. And this is actually one that you can still kind of find out there in the wild. It's it's fairly common. You can find the retro amiibo three pack, which includes game and watch Rob and duck hunt. So you can actually find that fairly commonly. You might have a little trouble, but it's 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 out there. It's floating around. Yeah, Mr. Game & Watch isn't exactly a high-tier character for most people. Typically, it's the, the higher-tier characters in Smash Brothers that do wind up going for more. Which is so funny, because that, that's one of my favorite characters to play in Smash 2. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely high-risk, high-reward. Yeah, it, he's great. He's a, he's a great amiibo. Uh, perfectly captures the character and you can even, I think there's even folks on like Etsy who have made bases to display the other ones with. So if you actually wanted to display all the different poses, you could. So the Amiibo is one of those things where you can get as into it as you want to, you know? Yeah. So for my number three, one of my very favorite lines of Amiibo in terms of the actual series is the Kirby series. Again, much like the Super Mario series, they did an entirely separate line, not even necessarily corresponding with games. Like they put it out around, I think the same time as like rainbow curse on Wii U and planet Robobot, but it, it works with all of those games and it works with many other games and it basically functions as a Kirby character amiibo, but the Kirby series Kirby amiibo is just the perfect little Kirby figure. There is it's flawless. It, it's just flawless. Like I, when I look at it, it is, it's the perfect pose with him on the big old star. It's, you know, the perfect, like, Kirby's such a simple character anyway. It, it, it's really hard to mess up Kirby's design. But so it all really does come down to the pose and the action of it. And I, I just love it. I, I love the vinyl sort of feel to the amiibo. It's just great. And, and I love that the base has, it's like the base of that series is like blue. So it kind of just, it just... I don't know. It's the perfect representation of that character for me in Amiibo form. I mean, we have the Smash Brothers Amiibo for Kirby and we have the Kirby series Amiibo for Kirby. I know there are several characters that have gotten multiple. Uh, those are the only two we have for Kirby, correct? Yes. Yes, that's correct. I believe. I know Mario obviously has like 50. Link across all of his different iterations has, you know, 50. Isabel, ironically, has three separate figures. Yes. Yes, she does. Uh, and those are just hard figures, not even including the cards. But I mean, you're absolutely right. It is hard to get Kirby's design wrong, but you're absolutely right. You can't just have him standing there. He has to be doing something uh, painfully adorable. And <laughs> I mean, that certainly qualifies. Yeah, the Kirby series was just King DDD, Waddle D, uh, Meta Knight and Kirby. So good little series, though. Good little series They're all around. Great. They're all great. But the, and I almost put Waddle Dee because I love those that little puff of like smoke from him. Like it looks like landing just on his butt. Like he's so good. He's, <laughs> that's a great figure. They're all great figures, but Kirby in particular. Just again, I love Kirby as a character, but just the in terms of the design of him and the way it's represented in the pose, him riding that big old star on the blue base. It's just it's flawless. It, it is my favorite little Kirby figure. I've never felt like 
I have a lot of various Nendoroids and Figmas and stuff like that, but I've always felt totally served in the Kirby department because that figure is so good. If we do get another Kirby Amiibo, I would like to see him in his, you know, suction pose. I would like to see them do an Amiibo based on that. I think that would be really, really interesting if they could pull that off. Oh, I would love any and all of the Kirby forms they could have done Amiibo. That's the thing. Like, people don't even realize how much more cruel Nintendo could have been with Amiibo. <laughs> like, they could have done one for each of uh, Kirby's various copy abilities. Like, they could have really dug in there, and I would have bought them all. I probably would have, too. That's yeah, I thought about that back when that series came out, and just... At the same time, lamenting the fact they don't exist and being thankful that they don't exist. For my wallet, I'm thankful. Yeah. Well, for my number three, we are staying with, you know, cute characters. And we are kind of double dipping in terms of, you know, I'm technically going with a character you've already mentioned. However, that's fine. I am going with the yarn version of that character. Ah. Because I absolutely loved the green yarn Yoshi amiibo. Now, are we talking mega yarn Yoshi or regular yarn Yoshi? You know, I thought about it. I'm going with the little regular size. I'm not going it with the, very cute. the plushy size. I'm not going with the plushy size Yoshi. I'm going with the more, you know, traditional amiibo sized figure, even yeah. though compared to other amiibo, the smaller size yarn Yoshis were still quite large in terms of amiibo figures at the time. Uh, they yeah. don't. They don't have a base like the vast majority of amiibo figures do. They are just adorable, incredibly tight knit little yarn Yoshi's, and they honestly remind me of Beanie Babies. I could see that. Yeah. So they came out with three of them. They came out with a light blue Yoshi. They came out with a pink Yoshi, and they came out with the, of course, iconic green color Yoshi. And I do like all three of them, and I do even like the Mega Yarn Yoshi. But ultimately, for me, I got to go with the OG and I got to go with the traditional size, the one that's not, you know, the plushy size, like I said, because I mean, in addition to being incredibly well made, in addition to just being too adorably cute for words, the functionality that those Amiibos had within Yoshi's Woolly World, they actually added a second Yoshi to the game. That's true. Kind of like a double cherry effect from Super Mario 3D World. It would straight up add a second Yoshi to your playthrough. And you would wind up controlling both Yoshi at the same time. And it was really, really interesting. One of the most unique effects the Amiibo have ever had. Uh, And many of them have many different effects across many different games. But that one certainly did stick out to me. Not just because the figures themselves were so unique, but because the game, the effect it had on the game was so unique. It was worth it. Just, I mean, it changed up the game so much. It was worth playing through just, you know, to experience that game with that added effect. Right. It's so unique, right? Like the the way they handled the Yarn Yoshi stuff in that sort of, uh, there's a you know Japanese kind of yarn craft, uh, Amigurumi style is kind of what they were going for there. Again, that, that like you said, that very tight knit sort of patterning, uh, it's very, very effective here. They also did a Yarn Poochie Amiibo. Yep. And I actually, when I display these Amiibo, I actually sit my my little green Yarn Yoshi on top of 
yarn poochie. <laughs> and uh, you can you can make it work. <laughs> you can make it work. But uh, but no, I, I absolutely agree. They did a phenomenal job. And it's so cool. Like when you've got a art style like this, that that is like crafted and um, and it is, you know, you know, to, to use their own term, woolly. Uh, it is sort of nice that they were able to accurately represent that in the real world with these little plushy figures. They're adorable. They're high quality. It, it actually just feels like a hand knit thing. And, uh, and yeah, it's, they're, they're phenomenal. I, I love them <laughs> for my number two, going back into the world of Zelda, but in a different style and a different game in the series, breath of the wild. I love what they did with the breath of the wild guardian amiibo. I almost put guardian on mine. It's so cool. I, I love, you know, they accurately captured the design, but one of the things I love so much about it, of course, is the fact that you can take its legs Yep. and pose them however you'd like. It's super cool. Yeah, I honestly don't know if there's another figure that has that type of posability. Not, yeah, not really. Not quite to that extent. I mean, like, you can make this thing do whatever you want. And it obviously, when you couple it with stuff like the uh, Archer Link or the Rider Link, you can actually sort of create little scenes almost with it. It's it's actually fairly impressive. And in-game, their functionality is pretty cool too. The the Zelda series amiibo, especially in Breath of the Wild, is pretty well known for its functionality at this point. You scan it, it drops a chest, and the chest contains special items. And for this one in particular, uh, it includes it'll drop uh, like some of the guardian or the ancient gear, uh, or it'll drop like uh, ancient components, like the the actual like cogs and springs and stuff like that. So it, it's thematically appropriate. Very useful in game, the the Zelda series amiibo, but uh, but no, I just I love the design, I love the sculpt of it, I love being able to pose those legs. Uh, it's it's just a great looking figure, and it's quite a bit oversized, so it, it it just it just looks really cool and big and intimidating on the shelf. Yeah, it is sized. It is scaled pretty accurately to a couple of the other Link amiibos from the set, which was obviously you know the intent there. So right. But I mean, if you when you bought the Guardian Amiibo, it came in a box. It was like three times as large as a standard Amiibo box. It was still, oh, yeah. it was still on the base. It was so oversized for the base, it was almost comical. But it is kind of funny when you look at it because it because it's like it is quite a bit larger than the base is. And just trying to use that and try to trying to fit that over the Wii U or over the Switch. Uh, to, to try to add the functionality. It almost felt like you were trying to just jab two massive things together as opposed to just laying a figure. Oh, just drop a figure very daintily. Oh, boop. There we go. Or you just oh, take yeah. this massive guardian, just palm it in your hand and just mash it into the Wii U or the Switch. Like, uh, function. It's so funny, like, yeah, because I played, obviously, the bulk of Breath of the Wild with the Pro Controller, and the the NFC reader is in the kind of like top middle, like right there on the switch logo of the pro controller. So trying to like get him to like squeeze in there on the top of that thing is kind of funny. But yeah, that's my number two. I, I just, I love that figure so much. Well, obviously one of the reasons we are talking about Amiibo is the Amiibo that were announced last week during the partner direct for monster hunter rise. However, there might be a few of you out there who don't know those aren't going to be the first Monster Hunter Amiibo. True. When Monster Hunter Stories 
3DS exclusive came out in Japan, they actually released six figures for the game. They never made it to America. They were only ever released in Japan, which is a crying shame because those figures are so, so pretty. They're really good. Especially the one-eyed Rathalos with the rider. Mm, so, okay. of all the ones in from that game, I had to go with the one-eyed Rathalos and the rider because there are several amiibo from that game that show off Monster Hunter creatures being ridden by characters from the game. But whether you choose the male rider or the female rider as your main character, the one-eyed Rathalos with the rider amiibo is just, oh, chef's kiss. Mwah. Yeah, it's actually, it's funny. Those are the only amiibo that, that and the Guardian... And a couple of others, those kind of oversized Amiibo, the cases that I have, the display cases that I display my Amiibo in, they won't fit in there. So I actually have to sit them either on a separate shelf or on top of the case because they're so big and and just ornate that they that they don't even fit. Like the, the Rathalos wingspan is like pretty big <laughs> the way it's posed and... Yeah, it's, it's a very big Amiibo. I got to admit, I'm not a big fan most of the time of the Amiibo that have those translucent white structures, those translucent white kind of uh, stability, whatever you want to oh, call yeah. them. But man, those, those Monster Hunter Amiibo are just so, so pretty. They're so well done. There's one of them that's kind of breaks the mold. It's not, you know, a Rathalos or one of the other monsters with a rider. It's just kind of one of the support monsters. But that one, for some reason, is now like $220, $250 on eBay. Oh, you're talking about the little uh, the little Palico? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so weird. Like, the, the figures that have, like, just risen in popularity are crazy. That one, the Box Boy QB Amiibo. Yep. Is one of yep. the more rare and expensive ones. Yeah, it's it's nuts. But if you are a big Monster Hunter fan, I definitely recommend checking those out. Get on eBay, get on Amazon. At least check them out. Uh, because they are, again, they are very, very nice figures. So uh, despite the fact that I don't have one, I haven't been able to get one. Because for some reason, they decided not to bring those gorgeous figures to America. Seth, I know you have them. but. Yeah. You know, even though I haven't been able to hold one in my hand, I couldn't keep that one off my top five. Yeah. I mean, I hope uh, that that when we were watching the Monster Hunter Direct last week, I was sort of hoping that they were going to just say, oh, yeah. And with Stories 2 coming out, we're going to go ahead and release these here and, and put out, you know, another wave. And maybe they still will. You know, we'll, we'll hold off on judgment. Maybe they will. That would be great. Nope. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, who knows? They also, interestingly... With these ones, I think they also did like a one, like a, a one-off contest where they like dipped them in gold or something like that and released them as a gold variant for a contest. It's literally like a one-of-a-kind thing uh, for some contest they held in Japan, but yes. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of little different niche cases like that. <laughs> Well, before we reveal our number one picks, how about we shout out some honorable mentions? I definitely wanted to shout out the Super Smash Brothers series Mega Man Amiibo. I love that thing so much. I love the pose, the color work, the paint applications. It's wonderful. And if we're sticking with the Smash thing, I also wanted to shout out the K. Rule and the Piranha Plant Amiibo. Love them. Yeah, the Piranha Plant Amiibo is like, it has no business being as good as it is. 
It's it's excellent. Um, like I said earlier, I had that Metroid one that you had on your list. That was in mine. Uh, another big boy, the Detective Pikachu amiibo. Yeah. Oh, I love it. He's so big, and he's he barely fits on his little base. He's well, his big base, and it's got like a like a map of the city printed on the base. It's super good and super high quality. Uh, the Chibi Robo amiibo, that yep. cute little guy with a plug on his head. I also have the Splatoon Octoling amiibo, not the yeah. actual characters, but the the octopus itself. Love that pose. Love the sheen it has on its ink and stuff like that. And then last one I'll shout out real quick for my honorable mentions is the Mario 30th amiibo. The the like pixelated Mario amiibos. I love them. <laughs> I, there were a couple that almost made my list. You had the Loot Goblin from Diablo. Oh, sure. That has great functionality in the game too, by the way. My cousin yeah. and I... Like we abused that amiibo so much. And if you have multiple, like we each had one, you can make a run with that Luke Goblin amiibo as many times as you have amiibo per day. <laughs> I also uh I also almost put the Shadow Mewtwo card that came with Pokemon Tournament. It's a cool card. Yeah, that was technically, even though it's a card, that was technically an amiibo, like the Animal Crossing amiibo cards. And uh, I also almost put uh, QB on mine yep. from the Box Boy yep. series that we mentioned earlier. Box Boy, great, great little puzzle platforming series. Uh, was on the 3DS. Uh, have they? Yeah, they did collect it and bring it over to the Switch. Yeah, they even did a, I think, an entirely new title, Box Boy and Box Girl. I think on the Switch, which I picked up, but we admittedly I, I didn't finish it. But it, I really like that series a lot, and they released the QB Amiibo only in Japan in a yep. bundle with the, I think the box boy collection in Japan. And that one is super expensive. I got super lucky with it. I got in on that right there at the ground floor, imported it from Japan with no problems at all. I bought it for MSRP. I was super lucky. And that, I mean, it's worth many times that now. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's an expensive one to track down, but I, I do love that little guy. And I actually really do like those Monster Hunter Amiibo you shouted out earlier, too. And I, like I mentioned, it's really cool. They got those super rare grand prize gold versions. But all right, enough honorable mentions. Let's reveal our number one picks. This probably comes as no surprise. But uh, speaking of gold, <laughs> my number one has the distinct honor of being one of the few commonly or i say commonly they're they're kind of hard to find now but uh one of the few released amiibo that is officially rendered in gold we've had mario we've had Mega Man, and we've had my number one gold shovel knight i'm actually looking at mine right now oh yeah i i love <laughs> i love the shovel knight amiibo anyway i love the pose i love the base I love its functionality in game. This is actually kind of Yacht Club caught a little bit of flack for this. A lot of people accused Yacht Club of actually gating content behind the Amiibo, but I disagree because the game is so fully featured even without the Amiibo and because so much of it is accessible without the Amiibo, having a little extra functionality with it to me is not egregious or anything like that. Um, they actually using this Amiibo unlocks the custom night mode, a uh, few co-op challenge stages in Shovel of Hope, and then a couple of costumes, which is a pretty substantial bit of content when you consider what Amiibo functionality admittedly normally is, which isn't much. Uh, this one does actually quite a bit. So I love it for that. But for me, it also just represented 
it kind of legitimized Shovel Knight a little bit. Like, you and I loved Shovel Knight, and Shovel Knight's obviously become a huge deal now. But when Shovel Knight first came out, like, everybody kind of loved it, but it wasn't the massive success that it is now. So kind of loving Shovel Knight independently and kind of growing with it, it was really nice to see this character legitimized with its own amiibo and not only its own amiibo, its own gold amiibo. It is in rarefied company. So it's it's really special to me for that reason. And I, I absolutely love it. Gold Mega Man, Gold Mario, Gold Shovel Knight, all just sitting up there in the VIP room sipping on mimosas together. Yeah, I mean, there are not very many gold amiibo, man. And it, it was cool. I mean, to see Shovel Knight given the same treatment as Mario and Mega Man, I mean, that's pretty major. Well, for my number one, it is also a special edition of an already released amiibo figure. But mine is a little bit different. Uh, while they were coming out, there was another very, very popular Toys to Life brand that was mm-hmm. kind of competing with Nintendo. But Nintendo decided while they were running theirs, because they didn't have a product like this other company, they would join forces with them for a a few figures. And I am, of course, talking about Activision's Skylanders brand. There were two Nintendo characters that jumped over for Skylanders Superchargers, the fifth game in the series. One of which was Donkey Kong, the other of which was Bowser. So for my number one, I am going with the Dark Hammer Slam Bowser, the dark variant of the Hammer Slam Uh, Bowser Amiibo Skylander. Yes. Only available, only available on the Wii. On the Wii in like its own bundle. (laughs) Yes, that was actually how you got the dark variant was by buying the Wii starter pack of Skylander Superchargers. And... Anybody who's ever collected Skylanders knows that these alternate versions, you know, Amiibo has their gold variants and a couple other variants, but Skylanders was infamous for its variants. And they had dark versions of their characters since the first game. You were big into Skylanders. I was. I still own the vast majority of them. But the Dark Hammer Slam Bowser and the Dark Donkey Kong with their clown car and with their banana barrel racer vehicles not only were they playable in skylander superchargers and skylanders imaginators but they were also amiibo figures with amiibo functionality for amiibo compatible games as well and it was a really really interesting concept you could slide on the base you would actually slide it over from its skylander functionality to its amiibo functionality and I I just thought that that was really, really cool. And just like the Amiibo, Activision did a really good job making the Skylanders figures. That was one of the things that helped propel them to the success they were, is not just the characters themselves, not just Spyro being in there, but the quality of the figures was good as well. So, uh, I mean, there's really not much more else to say, but uh, if, I mean, if, the Dark Hammer Slam Bowser was treated basically like a Bowser amiibo in most amiibo compatible games. So uh, you could get all of the requisite content as if it were, you know, the Smash Brothers Bowser or the Mario Bowser or even the Wedding Bowser from Mario Odyssey. Right. 
uh, or you would get the exact same functionality from the Dark Hammer Slam Bowser and the regular version of the Hammer Slam Bowser Amiibo Skylander that you would with any of the other Bowser Amiibos. And I mean, it was very much a double threat. And the fact that you had all that functionality and it was also a playable character in two other games, that's what takes it over the edge for me. It's really, it's a really cool looking figure. I liked both of them. They they did a really good job with that. I mean, the argument could really be made. I mean, Skylanders kind of walked so that Amiibo could run, right? So basically, yeah, they came out and they were massively successful. And Nintendo was like, oh, dude, no, we'll do that now. Right. And they're, right. they're the only ones doing it now. Uh, obviously, Skylanders came out with, you know, five billion different figures. And now six years later, uh, Amiibo is about to release its 200th figure. Yep. And that's not even counting the cards. That's just you know, oh. actual figures. Yeah. Counting the cards it is many times more than that. <laughs> so, yeah. But that was my number one, the Skylander Amiibo hybrid mutant crossover double X, you know, turbo, <laughs> turbo charge. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> super EX alpha edition bowser dark hammer slam bowser so quick recap my top five super mario brothers series yoshi link's awakening link kirby series kirby breath of the wild guardian and gold shovel knight your top five metroid series metroid smash brothers series game and watch green yarn yoshi monster hunter one-eyed rathalos and Ryder, and then the skylanders slash amiibo dark hammer slam bowser but guys, what are your favorite Amiibo? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Podcast, and be sure to subscribe to us wherever you're listening, and drop us a nice review, pretty please. And now, guys, we have a really... Oh, hey, buddy. How's it going in there? Oh, you're going to head back in and wait for the jury to come in? All right, buddy. Well, uh, uh, good luck, and uh, we're just going to be out here. We're actually about to jump on a call with Ash Paulson from Game Explain, so... Uh... If you if you need us, let us know, man. But but thumbs up, man. We believe in you. You're gonna be okay. Yeah. Uh. Good luck, I suppose. Uh. Yeah. But like you just said, we do have a retrospective coming up here at the end of the show. Big one, though. I'm really excited about it because we're talking about one of my favorite games, Mega Man Three. Alright, dear listeners, we've got a very special guest hanging out with us for our Mega Man 3 retrospective this week. He is perhaps best known for his work with a little YouTube channel called Game Explain. He's also a massive Mega Man fan, so please welcome to All In right now, Mr. Ash Paulson. Yay! Yay! Man, I'm very special and I get a fanfare. You guys are way too kind. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> very special. Those are those are big words to use, but no, I really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having me. And like I said before we started, for being so patient with me, because we actually talked uh, over a month ago now first about having me on, and then that was right in the midst of a big move my wife and I were making. So we're still unpacking in our new apartment, um, but uh, it, things are pretty chaotic there. So I appreciate you uh, being so patient with me and hanging in there. Hey, no worries. No worries. Happy to have you, bud. Yeah, happy to have you. Congrats on the move, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, where it's a huge upgrade for us. So we're very happy. I finally, it's a two bedroom place. So I finally have like an office I can 
a proper office I can set up for like a content creation space because in our old place, it was so you know small enough essentially as a one bedroom that my recording space was the coffee table in front of our TV, which is where <laughs> I also play video games or eat or, you know, working from home when you don't have your own office can be very difficult. So it's really nice to be able to have my own space to do that now. Right, right. Understandable. Well, speaking of that content creation, our fans probably know you most from Game Explain. But if anybody out there, for whatever reason, does not know about Game Explain, can you kind of describe the channel and, and what you do over there? Sure. So, uh, Game Explain is YouTube.com/slash Game Explain, and we are, um, you know, a, a video game content channel. Uh, our main wheelhouse is Nintendo content. Uh, we started as a Nintendo-focused channel, and we still primarily are Nintendo-focused. Although we have, in, in recent years, due to constant poking and prodding from me and my fellow game explainers like Derek and John, we've finally been able to expand our content into all platforms. Right. Uh, although, make, make, make no mistake, we do cover PlayStation and Xbox quite a bit now, but Nintendo is still what we are known for. And, uh, right. you know, Nintendo, all that's what originally drew me to Game Explain is because Nintendo, I play everything, but Nintendo has a special place in my heart. So, yeah. And so I'm, I'm a producer slash content creator there. Uh, I haven't been quite as visible on the channel lately because, uh, you know, as most YouTubers will tell you, it, it doesn't pay the bills uh, unless you're right. like in the top 1%. <laughs> And, you know, there are quite a few of us on the team, so there just isn't a, you know, they can't pay everybody's bills. So uh, I do everything I can there. I love the channel. I love the team. Um, but, you know, I do also got to get paid. So I don't have as much time as I would like to devote myself to the channel alone. But uh, I just I love GX to death. And uh, yeah, if, if you're looking if you're in the market for, you know, video game news and features and reviews, previews discussions, all that. Um, that's what we're known and loved for. So come check us out. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a GX fan for years. And if you guys are not subscribed over there yet, you, you got to do it. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite channels on YouTube. And uh, and yeah, you're always always a treat to hear on there and on the Real Talk podcast that you guys do over there. You guys are also on Patreon. Yes. So definitely, definitely share your support. Yeah, we just, uh, it was kind of sad. Yesterday we finished uh, recording our, the last episode of our Game Explained Real Talk podcast that will have John in it because John is uh, moving on to a new uh, new gig that he found. Very happy for him. And uh, of course, we're going to remain friends and chat all the time. But that was like the last official GX podcast with him on it. And that was a very, uh, you know, it was a certainly a bittersweet experience to go through because I just love that guy to death. Gonna miss him. Gonna miss him. But yes. uh, speaking of podcasts, though, you've also got another podcast project you've been kind of brewing on. I do. So uh, some of you who are aware of my work may possibly know who my dad is, uh, potentially. He is a uh, first-rate voice actor, top-class uh, Rob Paulson. He uh, has done so many different incredible iconic roles over the years. You know, Yakko Warner and Pinky from Pinky and the Brain and uh, two Ninja Turtles, Raphael and Donatello from different iterations of the Ninja Turtles and yes. uh, Antoine from Sonic, Saddam. And it's, uh, yeah, so he and I have been wanting to do stuff together for a long time. And we actually did. We, I produced a cartoon that he was the lead on called Bravo Man. Bravo uh, Man, yes. Yeah, yes. several years back for the Shifty Look Project with Bondi Namco. And that is still one of the best gigs I've ever had in my life. And uh, so we made that show with him as the lead character and we realized how much we love working together so we haven't been able to do it as much as we would like to uh in the years since but now we're kind of starting up our own original project called game that tune uh the first episode of which we ran uh or we recorded last month courtesy of flappers comedy club they're hosting us uh, virtually of course we're not 
I don't, I don't want anyone to get the idea that we're holding in-person <laughs> shows and putting people right. at risk of COVID. They're, they're all virtual shows. But yeah, we're actually having our second episode tonight. Uh, our first episode we had on Allie Hillis and Jennifer Hale. So we were able to talk about Mass Effect and Final Fantasy Thirteen and Kid Icarus Uprising. And that was a blast. Today, we're having on Nolan North of Uncharted and TMNT fame, of course. And, uh, you know, as long as Flappers wants to keep having us, they seem pretty happy with our ticket sales last month. So... We're going to keep doing it, and my dad and I hope that it can become really big. You know, we we think that um, we have two obviously separate, but also very overlapping fan bases. You know, his with animation and mine with gaming. Definitely. And so many yeah. people who play games love cartoons, and so many people who love cartoons love games, right? So we just figured, let's, let's see if we can tap into both our audiences and uh, see if we can you know, kind of hit that middle of the Venn diagram between our, <laughs> our two separate audiences. Certainly, a lot of connective tissue there, especially when it comes to. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the anime and cartoon voice actors do do a lot of video game work now. Right, exactly, and I mean, my dad's done a lot of video game work too. And uh, one thing I absolutely want to do, and I've already mentioned him at some point as a future guest I want to have on, is David Hader. Uh, not only because I've nice, you know, <laughs> I've dealt with him many times before. Super nice guy. I know him through my dad. Just love him to death. I'm a huge Metal Gear Solid fan. But what some people might not know is that. My dad actually did the voice of Gray Fox in the Twin yes. Snakes remake on GameCube. So for me, that was, you know, probably the most significant video game role he's ever had, uh, you know, for me as a game enthusiast. And so I just I want to have him and David do a script read, like a table read oh. of <laughs> some sort of scene uh, from Metal Gear Solid. And I think that, you know, between Snake and Gray Fox, and I think that it's going to be so fun when we when we can make that happen. That'd be awesome. Where's the audience? No, this yeah. is just for me, Dad. This is just me. Exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we actually, uh, that was something else we did for me in the first episode of Game That Tune, I guess, was that, of course, we had Allie Hillis and Jen Hale on, both of whom are in Mass Effect. So Jennifer Hale is female Commander Shepard, while Ali Hillis is uh, Liara. And so, right. of course, we had uh, one of their, not, nothing too racy, but, you know, of course, you can romance any character in the game Shepard can. And so <laughs> she, uh, they both wanted to do a table read of one of their romance scenes. And that was <laughs> so fun, watching them kind of get back into their characters on camera and just and, and have, have a good time with it, just play with it. It was a lot of fun. They were both such lovely people. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, we're definitely happy to have you with us today to talk all about Mega Man Three in our retrospective. We uh, hell yeah, you, know, you are uniquely qualified, I think, to talk about Mega Man, having worked with the Udon Mega Man books and been right. a huge fan of the series. I, I mean, I could, I love Mega Man. Obviously, I do. Um, any and all forms. I will say, my favorite character of all time is X. Uh, you know, Zero gets he, he used to hog the spotlight. I think it's cool now because X seems to now be like properly hogging his own spotlight as spotlight <laughs> as he should have years ago. But now it seems like the, the series and all the marketing and stuff really is focused on X and Zero's kind of his own entity now, which I appreciate. But uh, no, I, I love all forms of Mega Man and, you know, including Battle Network and Star Force. I can't stand the Mega Man fans who are like, oh, well, you know, those aren't real Mega Man. They're not platformers. Get out of here. If, it's, right. if it says Mega Man in the box and it's made by Capcom, it's Mega Man. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta love all aspects of it, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, for Mega Man 3, let's get into the facts here. So Mega Man 3 was released. We're talking about it because it was released almost 30 years ago, September 28th, 1990. 
Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. For the Famicom in Japan. Actually had the subtitle in Japan, The End of Dr. Wily? Question mark, exclamation point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we we find out why when we uh, you know f- eventually beat the game, and we you know we see why the uh, the subtitle teases us like that. Yes, you know it's funny. Girl, I thought that was a bird for the longest time growing up. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. I didn't realize <laughs> that it's actually Wiley's. It's the Wiley capsule. I didn't realize yes. that that's what it is for years. I was like, is that a bird? Is it like a weird eye machine thing? Like, what? Why is the tree have an eye that's staring at me? I never understood that until years later. Yeah, yeah, same. Let's let's actually, you know, speaking of that, let's go around the horn. What's your personal history, Ash, with Mega Man Three in particular? Well, it's actually the the if I can remember correctly, uh, because it has been over, you know, it's over thirty years. I can't believe how old <laughs> that makes me feel. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm quite sure that Mega Man Three was actually the first Mega Man game I ever played, and I now same. I made it. Oh, really? Okay, nice. So yeah. I don't know if I rented it before that at Blockbuster. I'm not, because I knew that I wanted it. I had specifically asked for it for the holidays that year. So I must have played it maybe at a Blockbuster, or maybe I played Mega Man 2 before that and don't remember. But either way, I knew I liked Mega Man, and so I'd asked for Mega Man 3 uh, for the holidays that year. I got it. I was super lucky, and um, that was kind of my indoctrination to Mega Man, I guess. And I would just play Mega Man 3 nonstop. I could never make it past Shadow Man. He was way too hard <laughs> for me as a kid. And um, I think from there, I just kind of, my natural love of Mega Man just kind of persisted. And I, after playing 3, I went back and played 2 and 1. You know, as a kid, 1 doesn't quite hold up to the others yeah. in terms of polish. Yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely different, especially if you go back and play one. It was it's a great canvas, right? It's a great starting point. But <laughs> yeah, I do remember. I guess may, I guess I must have played played one or two before eventually getting three as the first Mega Man game I owned because I remember at some point playing Mega Man one and not understanding. You know, I could select Cutman. Well, why am I not playing as this guy who's named Cutman? Why, why, who's this blue guy? I'm, I'm confused. You know, why <laughs> there's six different characters here? It seems like I'm going to play as them, but of course, I was just too young to get it. So I must have played one or two before three, but three is is the one that I remember most as like my indoctrination into Mega Man proper. Gotcha. Well, what about you, Eric? What's your uh, personal relationship with Mega Man and Mega Man Three? Well, Mega Man Three was the last one to come out before the Super Nintendo was released, obviously, and I remember seeing Mega Man X come out, but one of my friends told me he had, you know, Mega Man already. And I went over there and all of a sudden I was seeing these snakes everywhere and Snake Man Sage. And I was also really drawn to Spark Man. So I don't Mm. really draw too much anymore. But when I was drawing, I, I very vividly remember trying to draw Snake Man and Spark Man. I just thought they were two of the coolest characters I'd ever seen. But... I mean, but it was just great. Obviously, I'd played Mario and I'd played a few other games at that time, but there was something about Mega Man that just really drew me in. Obviously, the block outline, the aesthetic changes or the aesthetic choices. I mean, they just really spoke to me when I was a kid. And, you know, I I just ate up everything Mega Man from that point on. The original series, the X series, the that terribly cheesy cartoon from the mid 90s. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> No, actually, it's funny. My wife and I are watching those on YouTube at at the moment just because, you know, I mean, she's not a Mega Man fan like me, but she certainly appreciates my love of it and and has, you know, developed a passive interest in it. So we've been watching the Ruby Spears Mega Man cartoon on and off on YouTube, (laughs) and she loves it. It's just it's so bad. And it's just it's such a stupid show, but it's so fun, too. And what's funny about it, too, is especially 
you know, having the benefit of hindsight and, and you know, critic, look, looking at the cartoon with a critical eye, you can tell that 95% of that show's budget went into the intro. The intro to this day <laughs> is awesome. It's it's hype as hell. Like, it's well, well animated. It's dramatic. It, the art's really refined. And then you get the actual show, and it's not nowhere even <laughs> on the same radar. Right. But there's there's an endearing quality in its failures. Oh, totally. I mean, I you know, you, you got to love, uh, you know, brash broy proto man who's you know he puts mega in front of everything little bro let's have a mega battle he's such he's so obnoxious and i and of course you have mega man in his you know sizzling circuits and all this dumb stuff that he says it's there's nothing quite like that show and i still love it for that reason it's it's the best it's the best <laughs> well not to mention of course the stuff that really doesn't play well today like roll having a vacuum arm exactly and, you know yeah well, right. i can't have a girl robot getting in my way and it's like oh jeez, that's such a facepalm moment yeah that's so indicative of the of that era right so yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, for me, my first exposure to like like you, Ash. I think this was pr- I think this was my first Mega Man game, also. Um, but I have a very vivid memory. My my earliest childhood friend, he had the I think it was from Nintendo Power. It's a Mega Man Three poster. Nice. Again, I think it's from Nintendo Power. But all it was, I remember it so clearly. It's just a picture of the box of the Mega Man Three box. Uh huh. And it just it just simply says Mega Man Three. Anything else you need to know? <laughs> I okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was a uh, it was a an, an ad that Capcom yes. was running in magazines at the time. So I guess you got a poster just of that ad. Yeah, he had a poster of that ad, and and I, I remember it so vividly. He had it on his wall, and that right. was my that was my first exposure to Mega Man. And it's so funny because I you know we got to talk about the box art for two seconds because oh you yeah, know, of course Mega Man's box art is so notorious. At this point, I love it personally, but it's it is definitely like notoriously bad. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and this was still in in the era that Mega Man's box art or U.S. box art, at least, was really bad because Mega Man 3, you still got that weirdly like rosy cheeked Pinocchio-esque Mega Man that just (laughs) doesn't look at all the way the character is supposed to look. And you got green top man in the back. Don't know what he's doing. It's it's so weird seeing how the Western artists uh, interpreted what they were seeing in the game so differently from what it actually was. I mean, yeah, Mega Man still has a long way to look like how he does in the games. At least he doesn't look like a Buck Rogers knockoff in this one, though. He's not holding a gun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, at least <laughs> he has his proper uh, Mega Buster in this art. But it wasn't really until Mega Man 6 that he started in the Western art looking like, you know, like the robot kid that he's supposed to look like. But yeah, it looks like they're fighting on Cybertron and the box art. You've got all these planets in the background. Sparkman looks has this weird gray metallic look. Rush is standing next to Top Man like they're somehow allies. But at least at least he doesn't look quite like he did in two and one, where he's like this middle-aged dude. At least he looks younger in this. One. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't look like Street Fighter Cross Tekken Mega Man. Oh god. You know, it's such a shame about the timing of that because I think that literally any other time during, you know, the lifetime, you know, the life of the series, that would have been taken as the well-intended fun joke that it was. But unfortunately, that came right in the middle as you guys know of that horrifically long is Mega Man dead kind of drought that there was just nothing coming out of the series. Um right. so on you know, and that that was actually I think pretty soon after Legend 3 was canceled. So on the you know hot on the heels of all those disappointments, then we get bad box art Mega Man and Street Fighter Cross Tekken, and that was the last straw I think for a lot of Mega Man fans. There was a lot of anger back then. I remember. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, well, Mega Man is certainly uh, certainly no stranger to turbulent development. Let's let's get into the sort of yeah. history, the development history of this game because it it is an interesting one. So what's what's really interesting about this game in particular, it definitely seems like to me, uh, and maybe this is just as the result of like Japanese custom. It's a very honor based society. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. We can kind of read between the lines, but we don't have like a crystal clear image of what happened with this game's development, but we can kind of pick up some puzzle pieces. Right. So what's interesting about this game now, Mega Man 2 came out in Japan, December 24th, 1988, uh, right, right before Christmas here. Christmas, obviously not really a thing over there. Uh, so that, that's why that happened. But if you do the math, there's almost two years between the releases of two and three, which was back then a really long development time. Right. But apparently full development didn't begin until over a year after Mega Man 2's release. Right. Yeah, because I know there was some some employee switching going around, you know, around yeah. that time. Like um, the lead supervisor for Mega Man 1 and 2, Akira Kitamura, he left uh, between 2 and 3. So they kind of lost that, you know, I guess that uh, advantage that they had going into the first two games. And then I think that during the game's production, I think they also lost someone else. I'm trying to remember who it was, but I think like while they were starting to make the game, someone else left and that just pushed them back even more. It was very turbulent for sure. Yeah. And then, and like the, the composer, she got pregnant during the development. She only got to make three songs before somebody else came in. And right. Right. So there, there's a lot going on. They ended up bringing a new lead after uh, Akira Katamura left and uh, the new lead Masayoshi Kurakawa comes in. Apparently a lot of conflict between him and the development team. Right. Uh, Inafune has since said, I've got a quote from him here. He said that his new superior, quote, didn't really understand Mega Man the way his predecessor did, end quote. Right. I mean, his, his predecessor created Mega Man. So. Right. Yeah, it's just, exactly. It's, it's one of those weird things where, I mean, Mega Man 2 was apparently a fairly smooth process. The game was universally beloved by everybody, and it sold all the copies. I think it might be the best-selling uh, Mega Man game to date still and then almost inexplicably the creator the supervisor the director just decides to leave and not just leave he retires from gaming I just find right. that really interesting like right as they hit their stride right as all of a sudden Mega Man is proven to be this massive potential franchise that's you know now just getting going he's just like I'm out yeah, I mean, that was, uh, yeah, it's very, I mean, maybe there were other conflicts in his life. Maybe he just decided the game industry wasn't for him. I mean, right. any number of things, because clearly, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been something related to Mega Man 2 because it was so successful. And I mean, it wasn't just successful, but I think some people might tend to forget that Mega Man 2 was was Mega Man's kind of lifeline, you know, to, and, and to, it was, it was his last, the series' last chance, essentially. It was kind of like the... right. Fire Emblem Awakening, I guess, of Mega Man at the time. <laughs> because what Mega Man 1 did fine, but it didn't, you know, blow any minds at Capcom in terms of sales. So Mega Man 2 was made as kind of a passion project on the side, of, you know, while the developers worked on what they were officially assigned to, you know, develop by their bosses. But then they made Mega Man 2 as a passion project, and the rest is history. Then it launched this, you know, massive franchise that would go on to have like five spin-off series and you know, but Mega Man 2, if, if it hadn't been as successful, successful as it was, there would probably be no Mega Man today. And it's weird that Capcom wouldn't just 
uh, fast track the series after that. I just find that weird. Obviously, with the first one not performing as well, but after the second one came out and it sold all the copies, if I were president of Capcom, I would have said, no, you guys are going back to work right now. We need 15 more of these by Christmas. Right. I mean, <laughs> hey, I hear you. If I was in charge at Sega, I would have had Sonic Mania 2 on shelves this year. But yeah, oh, you know, yeah. man, it is, what, it is what it is. Just to just to put into context, like the the revolution that Mega Man 2 was for them. It You know, for, for those that don't know, a, much of the designs for the Robot Masters actually come from like a boss fight, uh, a boss design fan submitted contest. Yep. Right. And they they did that basically from two on. And, you know, for the actual, for Mega Man 2, they received 8,370 designs. Which is, yeah, that's so cool. And it's, and it's funny because when that blew up, coming into Mega Man 3, they then got over 50,000. That's, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Mega Man 3 was when the series kind of exploded in popularity again. You know, p- fans always love to go back as, you know, two versus three, which one's better. You know, I, I would uh, I, I would suggest that maybe a game that isn't either two or three is my favorite, but still uh, two or three is the one that, you know, they're the ones that everybody looks at when they're talking about the high points of classic Mega Man. Yeah, it just goes to show the expectations that the series suddenly had after two came out leading into three. And I just want right. to make a quick point. Uh, there were two of the robot masters that were chosen that were right. submitted under different name than what they were initially called. You had Shadow Man, which was submitted as Ninja Man, but then you also had Needleman from Mega Man Three, which was submitted as I don't know why they potentially, you know, I don't know why they possibly had to change it from Iron Man. But <laughs> <laughs> gotta love that. Yeah, so funny. <laughs> but you know, it's it's funny because. If you if you listen to Inafune talk about it, he actually considers this game to be like one of his least favorite entries in the series. Right. And I think he's even said like he would probably remake the entire game if he could go back in time and change stuff. Which is so interesting because you, you can definitely tell as you play through Mega Man 3. I mean, you can tell, especially if you're a hardcore Mega Man fan, something feels just slightly off kilter about it. You know, it, it yeah. was definitely released in a slightly unfinished state like the... The player yes. two debug stuff, the way you can, you know, hold a, a direction of the D-pad on, on player two, and then Mega Man can drop into any pit or get like space, you know, like space jumping, mega jumping abilities. Like it's definitely rough and was released yeah. in a rough state, but it's still so good despite that. It's so fun. Yeah, you could tell they didn't have much opportunity to like fully QA and optimize. There's like noticeable slowdown in some areas of the game. Like you can even create it if you want yeah, to. You can, yeah. Which I mean, you know, some people could you know could argue that you could use that to your advantage, but it's really funny how yeah the game kind of released in rough shape, but is still it is my personal favorite game in, in that classic series, and it's so funny that you know Fanny says here quote I knew that if we had more time to polish it, we could do a lot of things better, make it a better game, but the company said that we needed to release it. The whole environment behind what went into the production of the game is what I least favored. Numbers one and two, I really wanted to make the games. I was so excited about them. Number three, it just turned out very different, end quote. Which is, well, I mean, yeah, he I had mean, to wear it, so yeah. many hats. That's he true, did. he did. And it, but it's also funny, like, looking back on these comments, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and, you know... <laughs> certain recent developments surrounding Inafune, like Mighty Number no. 9 and yeah. such. And it, it definitely, some some of the things, you know, obviously I have a ton of respect for Inafune and, and his, his uh, influence on Mega Man, but I 
do take umbrage with the fact that he is often mistakenly credited as Mega Man's creator when he is not. Right. But not only right. that, you know, Inafune was at the forefront of, of some serious decisions that I really am glad didn't come to pass. Like he was the one who thought rebooting Mega Man X as a first person shooter with the Metroid Prime devs uh, would be a good idea with that horrifically just that cyborg-esque design of X with no face, and it was both, you know, dark oh, and gritty. Yeah. And that was his, you know, he that was back, back when Inafune was obsessed with making Capcom as Western-influenced as possible. He thought Western games were so much better than Japanese games. And, you know, it, it's definitely been the case in hindsight that there's a lot of what he said and did that I didn't agree with. Not that it matters what one random dude thinks of Inafune, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for him, but I don't know that uh, his uh, inclinations and preferences for what Mega Man is and could be really lined up with my own a whole lot. And I've got to say, you know, it's as much as as much respect as I have for Inafune as well. It is kind of interesting to know that the guy who decided Mighty Number no. Nine was in good enough state to release also said that he would go back and work more on a game like Mega Man Three. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That exactly. Right. I just I now, you know, I know with some of the postmortems that have been done about Mighty Number no. Nine, I know that, uh, you know, it's been basically said that the main problem that game had was that they overpromised in terms of delivering the game on like 25 different platforms. And of course, yep. that, you know, that 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 would make development difficult for any game. But it does. It is interesting that uh, when you put it like that, that you wanted to remake Mega Man three because he was unhappy with it. Yet Mighty Number no. nine. I mean, it's not even, you can't even compare the two in terms of how rough no. and unfinished they both were. No, and to be fair, the development was, like we said, really rushed. Probably, honestly, when you look at the release date, and I don't know this, I'm not going to make this claim on any sort of real basis, but what I assume happened was they probably wanted to get this game ready to release by holiday 1990 here in North America, because it would actually end up releasing here in November by the time that was all said and done. So right. that, that's sort of what I'm thinking and, and the reason that they rushed the development so much. But I mean, as we alluded to just a minute ago, this game was so rushed that like many things didn't make the final cut, including an intro. <laughs> right. <laughs> like any sort of introductory sequence. It's got this nice, like decently length intro track, but no real intro. So that's kind of funny. And the things that we actually know about this game's story leading up to the story, uh, we really only get, out of the game's instruction manual. So Right. Yeah. And, and and Mega Man 3 was like the first Mega Man game, I would say, that they, you know, really tried to build the universe up a little bit. And, you know, Mega Man 2 had a story. It has an intro cutscene and an ending, but it's very much just a basic revenge. You know, Mega Man beat Wily right. in Mega Man 1. Now Wily's back with eight of his own robot masters to get revenge. Fine. But Mega Man 3 really expanded things by taking the series into space. Uh, Dr. Wily seems to have been to, seems to have reformed, wants to build a giant peacekeeping robot with Dr. Light. Mega Man's got to go get the elements they need to build Gamma from, you know, different mining planets. Like they really tried to build up the lore in this game. And yet they couldn't they couldn't finish the intro in time for the game's release. And the only hint of a story you get before the, you know, late game cutscenes is in the instruction manual. Yeah, it's just like you said, it's a kind of give the the plot synopsis. Um, yeah, Dr. Wiley says he's reformed, teams up with Dr. Light to develop a peacekeeping robot named Gamma. And basically, yeah, sent out these, they, they created eight robot masters to send out to various mining planets and gather energy elements to sort of be the final piece of that Gamma 
puzzle. And then uh, these these robot masters mysteriously go crazy. It sort of uh, sort of implies I, I, this is never explicitly said, but I always felt that it sort of implied that Wily was like explicitly trying to like kill Mega Man. That's kind of what I got it. Yeah, yeah. As 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 he was sent off to to gather these elements, just to sort of nip that in the bud. But then, yeah, you know, Mega Man goes out. He and Rush set out for these planets to stop the robots, retrieve the elements, and this game. Is, you know, for those that don't know, the introduction of Rush. Right. And the introduction of Proto Man. Under, of course, the alias of, of Break Man until yeah. the very end. Right. And, yeah, and that was, I mean, Proto Man was essentially, you know, Mega Man's Racer X, right? I mean, he's he's clearly right. the Racer X to yes. uh, Mega Man Speed Racer. And, uh, you know, but what a what an iconic character he would turn out to be. Because with his, his I whole, love it whistle intro and his scarf yes. and you know just yeah proto man is uh is just I, I love him for completely different reasons from mega man yeah what a great and then rush i mean you know he's a good boy all dogs are good boys or good girls <laughs> and uh you know any series mega man or otherwise is better when you have a dog companion in it amen and yeah. that was the entire reason they put rush in there obviously in mega man one and two he had the the item numbers item one item two item three what have you and they just decided it would work a lot better if they actually had a character, a face, a personality behind it. And the world, you know, was right at that point. Exactly. I, I will say, you know, and of course, the plot goes that, you know, after retrieving that last energy element, you go back and then, oh, hey, Wily's actually bad. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise. And uh, he's going to use Gamma to rule the world, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've, I've got to admit, I honestly... And for the first 10 years or so after that game came out, I honestly just thought they had rebuilt Gutsman and made him bigger. <laughs> it looks fair. like that, doesn't it? And like, not only that, I never understood how Gamma would have been useful as a peacekeeping robot. I mean, he's really easy. I mean, he's big, but he's like yes. one of the easiest final bosses, maybe the easiest final boss in the classic really series, is. honestly. And like what Me Mega Man's far better at peacekeeping than Gamma could ever even hope to be. So what was their end game there? See, here's my fan theory. They actually live in the Power Rangers universe. Oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> so Rita Repulsa was going to attack with her giant monsters, and that was Gamma's entire thing, is he was going to be Mega Man's Megazord. Hey, I'm into that. Although I do I do think they could have given Gamma a, a kind of a cooler look, because again, he just looked kind of like a a, a giant off-brand guts man, as you, as you kind of said. And it's like, why, why did he look that dumb? It almost looked like an Astro Boy knockoff or something, but uh, I can see oh, that clearly. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, clearly. But but definitely, I mean, like, and another thing that I think is really interesting about Mega Man Three, even aside from this, is something I'll talk about at several different points during this discussion. But something Mega Man Three just has this kind of like air of mysterious, like almost maturity to it. There's like an emotional tinge to it, especially at the end. Yeah. At the end, of course, after Gamma is defeated, uh, Debris falls down, crushing Mega Man and Wily. And then, you know, the mysterious figure, Breakman, comes in to, uh, to save Mega Man. And then, the, the, you know, the epilogue starts after that point, essentially. And, man, that, that ending, I actually played through this game again, just to sort of get a fresh memory of it. And uh, it's still, I mean, like when, when that revelation is made to Mega Man and, and you hear the whistle come on, it still yeah. kind of gets me emotional a little bit. I'm not going to lie. No, it's, it's, it's really cool. And yeah, you said there's kind of an, an air of uh, just something a little slightly more mature that's going on, or at least more, you know, 
layered and thoughtful than, than what was going on in Mega Man 2. And you got a hint of that in 2, I guess, with the ending cutscene where Mega Man's walking home through all the different seasons. And, you know, you, you, right. you start getting the sense that Mega Man hates fighting and that he doesn't want to be necessarily doing what he's doing, but he knows he has to. You get a hint of that in 2, but 3 definitely expands that a whole lot more with Proto Man. And I still, I mean, it, I remember, I think I remember the first time I saw the end and how shocked I was when, you know, the giant concrete blocks fall on Mega Man and Wily. Like, yeah, I still yeah. to this day I don't understand how how did Wily survive that? Mega Man's one thing, but how did Wily <laughs> right. literally how did Wily survive that? Especially when he didn't have base yet to protect him or save him or whatever. So I don't I still don't know how he survived a concrete slab falling right on top of him. It's another life model decoy. I was yeah. just gonna say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, another area that I think that this game really shows an air of just maturity. And I'm excited to talk to you uh, about this, Ash, because like you, I'm a big video game music fan. And nice. this one, a lot of people make kind of the the comparisons to Mega Man 2 and 3, which soundtrack is better. I, I don't like to say definitively which one is better, because for me, they both serve the games appropriately well for each game. Yeah. Mega Man 3 has that sort of weird, like, mature, a lot of, like, minor keys in its music and stuff like that. It kind of has that that tinge to it that I think works so well with this game's music. I think so, too. And, you know, and I like that Mega Man 3 kind of extended on from the, you know, the first two games and how they, you know, even were... I think one of, the, one of the things I love about video game music so much, especially video game music from this era is that, you know, I love seeing how the composers worked around their technical limitations to yes. affect emotional responses anyway. And so you hear that, and of course, everyone's favorite Wily Stage 1 theme from Mega Man 2, and you, you know, you kind of get that, you know, Mega Man's kind of the world's last hope, and there's an emotional undercurrent. It's kind of sad that he has to even be doing this in the first place. Like, you know, the, 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 the music really does help kind of communicate probably what Mega Man's thinking, right? And this is an, an NES game from the late 80s, and I just think that's so cool. And so you get that in Mega Man 3 as well with pretty much every Wily Stage theme, I would say, but but uh, particularly the first and the third ones. You really yes. get that kind of tragic hero type uh, sound from that kind of dramatic sound uh, from Mega Man 3 soundtrack. And that's also counterbalanced, though, by some just really great jams that, that are just, they propel you forward to the level. I mean, Snake Man, not necessarily an emotional tune, but... Man, it's just a badass song that just makes you want to just get through that stage. I mean, it's some of the best platforming anthems ever. I mean, Snake Man and Spark Man, Magnet Man. I mean, there's so many good tracks in this game. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners know that Seth is obviously much more the game music person. I'm not going to be talking a lot about music theory, but for those people who've never played the original Mega Man games, we're not just, you know, this is not hyperbolic talk. Capcom in the 80s and early 90s was, I, they were the absolute king of 8-bit music. They, oh, they yeah. completely were, especially the Mega Man series. The Mega Man series is probably the height of the 8-bit soundtrack without hyperbole. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I, I would say that also extends to the Super NES era, too. I mean, the the stuff, the magic they were able to work in the 16-bit era with games like, you know, Mega Man X and Super Ghouls and Ghosts. And I mean, yeah. they, and then of course, you go back on NES and it's not even just Mega Man, although I agree that that was, that represents the very best of their music. But I mean, look at something like DuckTales. The moon has right. no right being as 
unbelievably epic and and as good as it is in a for, for a DuckTales game. I mean, like, what? It's so good. This is like one of the best video game songs of all time right there. Oh, yeah. You can you can have that on loop for hours and I'll never get tired of it. Oh, yeah. It's it's just perfect. That that man, it's so funny. Like the like you just said, the snake man, like that's actually when I come into this game, that's actually the first stage I tackle just yeah. because of the music. Look. <laughs> I just want to hear that. I've also always found Snake Man himself to be one of the most fun Buster-only fights across the entire series. He's so fun to fight with just the Mega Buster. He just like having a, you know, he has a specific pattern, but the pattern is just tricky enough that you have to stay on your feet. And it's it's just a lot. There's a lot of, you know, it's just it's the quintessential Mega Man fight. Lots of running, lots of jumping, lots of dodging. It's it's a really good fight. It really is. That's that's actually in in the two D. And, th- and that's sort of classic Mega Man. I think Snake Man is probably my favorite stage out of all. Oh, of yeah. Them, to be honest. He might be. It might be mine, too. I know uh, Shadow Man, I'm, I'm a big fan of as well. I'm trying to oh, think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, probably Snake Man, I would say, is probably my overall favorite stage in that game. We're very close to it. Pretty much the my go-to song when I play Smash Ultimate with friends and I open an arena. Uh, one, one of my go-to songs for the arenas that I open is the the new Snake Man remix in Ultimate. And I'm not oh, sure if so you guys good. have heard it. Okay, I assume you have. It's so, so good. good, right? It's like uh, perfect. So I, I spend just, Smash Ultimate's music, uh, I, I just spend hours. I think literally hours of my time in that game has just been listening to the music, but... No, same. And like in the end, you know, adjust ever, just ever so slightly adjusting the My Music rates for all, what now is it, 100 and... 10 stages in the game some crazy yeah. yeah so i hear you i mean i i have spent so much time and then that game is not just the Mega Man music all the music in smash and adjusting yeah. the rates and oh man i could go on about smash's music forever too <laughs> and of course with independent games being such a major part of the industry at this point and obviously a lot of these independent studios not really having access to full orchestral soundtracks i mean obviously capcom's influence is still continuing very well and strong through 2020 and helping to inspire a lot of these new game soundtracks and the the in the influence is very very clear especially in games like shovel knight i was gonna mention shovel knight i mean uh to me i'm I'm a big jake kaufman fan and but to me shovel knight and specter of torment still represent his absolute best works in my opinion and i mean the the Mega Man influence isn't just like it isn't just there. It's like thickly woven throughout. Like there's no yes. there, there are several inspirations for Shovel Knight's soundtrack, I think. But Mega Man is the one that is by far the most, you know, front and center. Yeah, we've said this a few times on the show, but Shovel Knight doesn't really make uh, doesn't really make any bones about where it's getting its inspiration from in any aspect of the game. But at <laughs> yeah, you can certainly understand the places it does take information for, uh, ins- inspiration from. Oh yeah, like that first Tower of Fate stage. That is that is quintessentially the the Mega Man Wily stage one. That exactly yes. you know you got the light motifs. You, you know, kind of bringing everything back to the original theme, and it, you got that dramatic element. I mean, it's clearly modeled right after a Wily stage, and I love that. Everything about when when I think about Mega Man 3's soundtrack, that is the word that just comes to my mind is mature. It just mm. seems like it just seems like the the maturation of a Mega Man soundtrack to me. When you come into that, like Dr. Wily's stage one from Mega Man 3 is one of my favorite songs of all time, just period. It's really good. Yeah. It, it it's it's impossible to compare it to two because again the vibes are just so different between the two games and those two songs in particular. Two is obviously the the legendary one, but but three I think is 
is so good and and just like like you said earlier ash just puts you in that headspace that emotional headspace and then coming into the end when like to, to talk about orchestral music like it almost feels cinematic the epilogue of this game absolutely like, walking through with the whistle theme playing over the music i mean it's just so good like i i love everything about it i i can't see that that ending without getting a little misty <laughs> no i i hear you i'm the same way with uh as i mentioned before my favorite character of all time from anything is x and so for me i never get tired of hearing songs that put me in x's headspace like the like uh, his sky lagoon theme from x4 or uh, especially the second Sigma stage theme in, in uh, the original oh, Mega Man X game, right after yes. Zero has died, of course, for the first of a hundred billion times. But back <laughs> then, it was still a big deal. Back then, it was still it, it was a big deal. It felt really sad, right? So that second Sigma stage that just that so perfectly puts you in X's head and, and what he must be thinking. And I that's one thing that Mega Man does so well. I think that uh, doesn't. Oh, sorry, I'm I'm. There's like a police siren going behind me. I'm not next to no worries. Um, but that's just one thing that Mega Man does so well that I think fans, by and large, absolutely get. But that uh, the layperson or or bystanders who may think that Mega Man looks cool and his games are fun and that's great, but I, I think the layperson doesn't necessarily get that there is an emotional undercurrent to Mega Man. That it isn't just running and jumping and and surface level. It, it's it is. There's there's a there's a real personality behind the characters in the series, and there's a real uh, there's a real element of sympathy that you feel for Mega Man and X because the way their characters are built up, they don't want to fight, but they have to, and I think right. that is so so well through the music more than anything. Speaking of running and jumping and X, I do want to actually talk about the gameplay for just a second because especially a lot of our younger listeners may not realize this but here we are three games into the Mega Man series and Mega Man still doesn't have his charge shot yet right right uh Inafuna has come out and said that he thought it made the game too easy however despite the shortened development time of Mega Man 3 they were able to still add a new wrinkle to the gameplay in addition to uh, Rush yes. in addition to Proto Man Mega Man 3 is the first time we see uh Mega Man's iconic slide ability make an appearance and what what an addition it was I I think as a kid I didn't quite realize just how important the slide move was you know it just felt like it was kind of it's short it's kind of quick but it doesn't feel like that useful but you know, when you, you know, with the uh, the hindsight and benefit of maturity, you can see that just how perfectly and finely tuned that the slide move is to add just enough variety and player agency in, in Mega Man's, you know, basic repertoire. It's such a cool move. And it, I mean, to the point that I really thought, I mean, everybody loves Mega Man 9. I do too. I think it's a great game. But I do think that taking away the slide, and to a lesser extent, the charge slot, but definitely the slide resulted in an objectively less interesting game. I don't Agree. like that you can't dodge in Mega Man 9. I never hit and 10. I never like that. Yeah, I I completely agree. It's that's actually why when when people give me that 2 versus 3 argument, for me like 3 is when Mega Man just started to feel right. Like for like I I love those other games, don't get me wrong, but the slide just adds that extra layer of options to the traversal, to the movement, to combat. It, it, it To me, that's that's how Mega Man should feel, you know? When I try to go back to Mega Man 2 and I try to play Quick Man stage without a slide? Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. No, I mean, it's it's kind of an unpopular opinion, but I have said in many different places that, you know, Mega Man 2 is obviously a classic, and I would never, ever deny that. But I do think it's just a little bit overrated. Uh, and by, by a little bit, yeah. I mean a lot of it overrated. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it's a great game, but I do think that the, the the level design in particular really falls apart in the back back part of the game with the Wily Castles or Wily Castle stages. And right. It's just not as, you know, the the, fir- the front half of that game, the eight Robot Master stages, some of the best game design, like, there, it's always so fun to play. But then the Wily Castle, just the momentum really grinds to a halt for me, other than the music, of course. And um, But 3 doesn't really have that problem, and and neither do some of the other games in this, in this series that I really love. I mean, this is a super unpopular opinion, but personally, my favorite classic game, despite its uh, shortcomings, is 5. I love okay. Mega Man 5. And uh, you can, you know, you can talk about how it's way too easy. The the Super Mega Buster is way too overpowered. All those things are true. But just the the designs of the bosses, of the levels, the fact that there were two castles instead of one, a trend that started with Mega Man 4. And, oh, my God, Mega Man 5's music. It's just so oh. good. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and so 3, to me, kind of hews more closely to a lot of the later games in the series that I really love. And I think that's one thing I didn't like about nine was that it tried too much to be Mega Man two, two. And I really like games like, you know, four five and six, where I think, you know, more kind of lay people or critics who are not as into Mega Man will just say, well, that's when, you know, there's that popular line, right? Well, that's when Capcom started to run out of ideas. That's when the series began to lose its steam. No, go back and play Mega Man six today. It's aged so well. And I, I can't stand that that uh, that line of thinking that Mega Man ran out of ideas after three. That's just so not even close to true. I will say Mega Man three did steal a couple things from two, specifically the eight robot masters. Of course. I, you know what I've got to say? I didn't really think about this until I realized just how much of an interesting development cycle it had. But all the eight robot masters from Mega Man two do make an appearance, kind of, in Mega Man Doc three. Robot. Yeah. Right. yeah. So it makes me wonder whether or not the fights were intended to play out that way, whether or not they were intended to all be essentially the same body. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, that's hard to say because of, yeah, again, we, we know about Mega Man 3's turbulent development. It's impossible to say, I guess, if they were actually planning on having proper refights with the, all the Mega Man 2 robot masters in the game. I think probably my my... I guess my guess is that it's probably not the case and that the doc robots were always meant to be what we see them as in the final game. And that's, I guess that's my, that's my guess, but I can't say for sure. I don't really have any evidence to back that up, but I feel like Mega Man three was still early enough in the NES's life cycle that having that many different characters for them to have to, you know, retrieve from memory and such, you know, 16 whole robot masters with animations and everything. I don't know if that would have worked, but I'm also not a developer, so I can't say for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, I think, and I agree. I, I think it was intentional also, uh, always from the beginning with the, with the doc robots. And by, by the way, if you look at the design for Doc Robot, like if you actually look at the art, it's actually kind of disturbing. Like how he's got all the, all the weapons, like decommissioned weapons on his back and stuff. It like is, that. right? And yeah. <laughs> And that, that's kind of part of what that's kind of part of what you guys are saying to, in my opinion, that that lends Mega Man Three a slightly darker air. Yeah, is designs like Doc Robot and the fact that these, you know, whatever the the souls or the or the brains or whatever of these past defeated robot masters were being 
brought back to life in this essentially as zombies, I guess, in a way they're like yeah. zombie versions of the Mega Man 2 Robot Masters. And that always creeped me out a little bit, especially when you're revisiting these stages that are, you know, dilapidated, worn down, yeah, or destroyed, yeah. damaged versions of the stages you've already played through. Right, right. And then like they're like, I guess, souls or something are coming down from the ceiling. And the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, no, that was one of the one of those just really interesting things. And we've seen, you know, we've seen the series attempt to kind of recreate a version of that with the uh, weapons archives in Mega Man 10, which I also thought right. was really cool. But Same. the Doc Robot, definitely the first time you see it and, and even the hundredth time you see it, it's still like, wow, that was a really cool idea for such an early Mega Man game where they were still kind of finding their footing. What's uh so talking about the robot masters. What, how do you guys feel about this cast of robot masters for the Mega Man three cast? Yeah. I, I like how in Mega Man three, they started to really, I think kind of go out there, obviously with the first win yet fireman, Iceman, Cutman, they were pretty, pretty standard. And then with Mega Man two, you had, you know, airman, Woodman. Metal Man, they're starting to kind of branch out, but then in Mega Man 3, it just felt like they started just going, you know, just completely bonkers with the Robot Master designs. Like, not quite Frogman or Sheepman, but it, it really felt with Mega Man 3 that, you know, the floodgates had opened, anything was a go at that point. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you said it perfectly. I, I think that's what I really like about 3's Robot Masters, is that that, that was the one, 3 was the game where it felt like they would, they'd finally unshackled themselves, and and not just were limiting themselves to robot masters based on elements or basic characteristics. Right. You know, this was the one where they really, yeah, snake man, magnet man, shadow man. Like there were just genuinely different concepts on display. And I think you kind of see that mirrored later in the series with Mega Man nine and 10, where nine was designed to be like two and had those basic, you know, splash woman, magma man, uh, you know, kind of more right. basic concepts. But then in 10, you get really off the wall ones like sheet man and, blade man and pump man pump man has to be one of my favorite designs <laughs> it's it's so dumb he's got to pump his own water <laughs> by like an old school pump there's no point in it but i love that design <laughs> it's the best yeah who's uh <laughs> what what do you guys feel about the uh the weapons in this game because i think this is a little controversial yeah well this was like the first Mega Man game where there isn't you know really uh i mean they kind of screwed up with the the weapon order like the boss order because no matter what right route you take you're always going to only have the mega buster or at least not have the right weapon for one of the bosses so i always found that interesting and i do think that maybe a little more could have gone into the weapons i I think that's probably one of the things that stands out more in terms of the game's status as an unfinished release is that the, the weapons are a little bit uninspired there are ones i like for sure but in general i do think that Mega Man 3 ranks among the uh weaker lineup of special weapons and i think honestly i think a big part of that is and again i don't have any evidence for this but i we were so spoiled with the metal blade yes it was such an op weapon in Mega Man 2 that it almost kind of feels to me like they the developer said to themselves all right like that metal blade was far too powerful we got to rein it back in a little bit we cannot make another stupidly powerful weapon like that so we got to we got to balance it out a little bit got to nerf these things a little bit and i think that's probably why we wound up with the weapons we did in mega man 3 what's so funny is that you know even though that's completely true they they kind of got halfway there with of all weapons the shadow blade like of course the shadow yeah. blade isn't nearly as op as the metal blade not even close but 
of all the eight weapons in Mega Man 3, the Shadow Blade not only looks the most like the Metal Blade, it's easily the best and most OP weapon in the game. So they kind of got halfway there with the Shadow Blade, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, you got, like, the Gemini laser who, where it's like, I mean, I hope you land that shot. Exactly. <laughs> you can only have one on screen at a time. You know, Search Snake is, it can be useful in specific situations, but generally there's no reason you wouldn't want to just use the Mega Buster, or I guess I should say the Plasma Cannon, as it was uh, then known prior to Mega Man 4. Um, right. Yeah, and then, you know, then you guys, you got cool weapons like the Spark Shock. Like, I love the... The sound effect for that, I love the way it looks. Yeah. It's cool, but it's so mostly worthless. And I think <laughs> the Smash version of Spark Shock is a lot cooler than the Mega Man Three version was. Well, I think the biggest indicator of the the state of the weapons in Mega Man Three was the fact that to get to the player to actually use one of them, they literally had to make the final boss weak against one of the abilities just so that the character, just so that the player would actually finally use it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and that and said weapon was actually broken. Like it wasn't, you know, it's kind of like both the top spin and and uh, charge kick are kind of like those weird classic era Mega Man weapons where you it didn't feel like they were programmed properly. So you essentially have to tank damage just to be able to use it. And even when you do use it, you you know, you can occasionally like when fighting Shadow Man, one use of the top spin can somehow deplete the entire meter if it just hits him slightly the wrong way. And it's just clearly a glitchy weapon. So funny. It's so yeah. weird. It's funny. I actually always used, uh, against Gamma, uh, I always used the Search Snake, which is really dark when mm. you think about it, because you're essentially dropping robot snakes into this small compartment where Wily is sitting. So what exactly is going on there? You know, who's really taking <laughs> right. the damage here? Yeah. <laughs> That's it's true. Like, it's like Indiana Jones. I hate snakes! Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> what about the Wily Castle bosses? Which one of those is your favorite? Oh, good question. Um, I never really liked the turtle very much. Uh, I can't remember the name. It's in the Mega Man classic art book. I used to know all the names. It's like the Kamegoro or something. Uh, yeah, something like that. And there's yeah. the Mega Man clones. I, I do like that clone battle, I have to say. I like it a lot yeah, more than, than the one in Mega Man 1. Um, and if you if you guess right the first time and you have the needle cannon equipped, you can pretty much end that fight in one turn if you you have a little luck on your side yeah yellow devils going yellow devil yeah that was my first reaction that was my first exposure to the yellow devil so i didn't really have the the traumatic experience with Mega Man one that most people had had at that time oh nice well (laughs) and also the yellow devil mk2 is just not it's not as fun to fight like the the yellow devil fight in Mega Man one when you get the pattern down it's actually a really rewarding fight because it looks cool it's an easy way to show off and it's it looks a lot harder than it actually is if you are willing to put in, you know, the effort to kind of to memorize the pattern. Now, also, once you understand that the pattern's the same every time, so it's it's pretty easy to pull off, and it just looks really cool and is fun to play when you get it down. Mega Man threes, it just doesn't. It's it's harder to dodge, but in an, in a in an artificial way, it feels like, and it's just it's right. slower. It just isn't as fun to fight, in my opinion. So between all the different devil versions, which one do you think, you know, where do the where do they rank for you? Oh man. Well, I think in terms of uh in terms of sheer impact, I have to go in terms of like sheer story world impact, uh, I gotta go with the Shadow Devil and Mega Man X5. I mean, mm. that when you first see ah. that with the you know, when you first see the Shadow Devil and you start realizing there's the W logo in the back, and you're like, oh wait, this yeah. is getting really close to home. This is getting really cool and feels like some big revelations about to happen and then it to some extent does but just the build up 
with the Shadow Devil, uh, I really love. And I think, but beyond that, if we're talking about just the classic series, I think for me, it's got to be the Slime Devil in both Mega Man 8 and Mega Man and Base. It's just, I love the, it's a cool look. I love the goopy, uh, the, like the goopy quality it has. And when you shoot like the actual slime, it kind of, especially in Mega Man 8, you got that kind of bouncy, goopy sound effect. It's just a, I don't know. I like, and like, the, I like the way the slime hardens into spikes. And it's just a really cool riff on the idea of the Yellow Devil. I appreciate that. I like the way it, uh, like as you shoot it, it just kind of folds away from the face to eventually open exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's so cool. But the on the on the other side of that, the block devil, get that thing away from me. I hate the block <laughs> devil. I hate that thing. That's like the one part of Mega Man Ten. When I go back, I'm just like I, I remember I have to fight the block devil, and I'm just like, oh god, I hate this guy. <laughs> I've already so I've already revealed my hand in this, but. Uh, but what's your favorite stage in Mega Man 3? Hmm. All right. I mean, are we talking about the entire game or just the Robot Master stages or? Entire game. Oh, man. Um, trying to think. It's probably it's probably a lock between Top Man, Shadow Man, and Snake Man. Those are like my top yeah. three, I think, in, in Mega Man 3. But if I had to go with one... It's probably going to be Snake Man, I have to say, but it's close though. Top Man's music is so good too. It is, um, and Shadow Man's iconic and in a completely different way. But I think probably going to be Snake Man. I, I guess I would say, yeah. I I hate to repeat the answer, but I, again, just because the fact that I felt like I was always trying to draw Snake Man, like the Snake Man episode from I talked about the original cartoon a while ago, but the episode where Mega Man and Snake Man switch bodies. Yeah. That I'm, I just feel like Snake Man was probably the most integral part of my Mega Man experience with the original franchise prior nice. to, you know, the revival of Mega Man 9. Nice. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, I mean, Snake Man is a, he's got everything going for him. Cool design, awesome music in his stage, a fun stage to play through. I mean, it's just, yeah, Snake Man is like quintessential Mega Man at its best. And especially in the 90s, those types of designs were really getting over with kids like kids love Baraka kids love, you know, yeah. those, you know, those types of designs, like the fanged dangerous looking things. Oh yeah. And snake man was exactly that. Oh, totally. Skull man was another great representation of that in Mega Man four. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I mean, there's, there's, I, I really like all of these stages. There's not really one that I dislike. Uh, I know a lot of people find magnet man to be really hard or whatever. They find the game in general to be really hard, but once you know it, it's yeah. really it's really not as hard as you think. I agree. I mean, that goes for, I think, Mega Man in general, to be honest. I think, you know, yeah. people talk about how Mega Man 9 is like just the hardest game ever. And it's like, no, it really is not even close. I mean, once you learn it, you can blast through it in, you know, 30 minutes or less uh, yeah. in, in, in game time. And I mean, Mega Man in general is just one of those series that really rewards mastery. Yeah, it's hard at first. Absolutely. But it becomes shockingly easy once you reckon with the mechanics and the momentum and the the the, the uh, sense of gravity in the game and it's it just once you grapple with how Mega Man plays the games get a lot easier and really reward repetition and and learning and I, I think that's one of the things I love about Mega Man so much yeah completely agree I, I think that if you if you take the time to really learn it I, it's such a rewarding series and you know for for this game in particular, for for all the disappearing blocks and stuff like that, it's uh, it, it also does a lot. You know, it's it's one of those things too. With the introduction of Rush, you know, you, you kind of using Rush properly 
can negate some of that difficulty too. So that too. I mean, especially <laughs> in this game specifically, because the rush jet was so OP in this game oh, yeah. compared to how it would be in later games, because you can literally fly in eight directions uh, and you can, you know, basically just have full control over where you go with rush instead of having a constantly forward momentum going. I wish they'd kind of been able to, to do the rush drill like they wanted to. I know that would have been cool, right? I agree. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Instead, I had to settle for doing it in Marvel versus Capcom. Right, right. But we did we <laughs> did at least get the Rush Marine in Mega Man 3, which is one of the few uh, games that actually saw usefulness in, or any use in, before being scrapped later on. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I guess so. I guess the one thing I would say is that uh, one of my favorite things about uh, the Smash, how, how Mega Man was transplanted into Smash, is the, the, the top spin, right? Like, they took a yeah. joke of a weapon, a, a, a largely useless joke meme of a weapon and and made it Mega Man's dash attack in Smash. And, you know, you can talk about end lag and whatever you want if you want to get really technical about it. But in terms of visuals and just how good it feels to, to pull off a full top spin in Smash, it's, it's just it made it a really cool weapon. And I love that. <laughs> I, I love Mega Man's representation in Smash just in general is such a delight Oh, so good. So good. And of course, that came, you know, Mega Man was revealed for Smash right in the middle of that long drought of, of no Mega Man. So for many of us, that was the ultimate sign of life for any franchise. Like if you get in, if you're a third party and you get into Smash, you're obviously, you're, you know, you're special. You're part of something and uh, you're part of a, you know, a, a small group of respected icons that really are important to video game history. So I think for me and certainly a lot of other Mega Man fans, having Mega Man kind of um, honored and legitimized in that way in Smash right in the middle of that really bad drought was really, it was really nice to see. And uh, I mean, to this day, that's probably like the the most kid on Christmas morning I've been as like a young adult. You know, obviously now that was what, 2014, 2013, that was seven years ago already. But like my wife still tell, I know, right. But my wife still tells me she she wishes she had been recording me because, you know, Mega Man and Smash had been my dream announcement since Sonic got into Brawl, essentially. It's Snake to a lesser degree, but once Sonic was in Brawl, it's like, okay, you go Sonic, the next natural stop for after Sonic is Mega Man. It has to happen. So I remember keep I kept thinking maybe he'll make it into Brawl. He didn't. But then all those years later, when we got that announcement for Smash 4, my wife says she uh, still wishes she would have recorded me because she saw my face go through emotions that that she had never seen before go through or since. And that I was just <laughs> and, and of course, my Twitter was blowing up and like, oh, my God, are you OK? This this is holy. Oh, my God. And yeah, that was one of the like that was a true kid on Christmas morning announcement for me. I felt like I was eight years old again and I was just on top of the world, man. That was just so exciting. Oh, dude. When they announced Banjo for Smash Ultimate. Same. Yes. Uh, I, I literally, <laughs> I had a visceral physical reaction. Like my, my, my body could no longer stay on my couch. Like it was impossible. Yeah. I was, I was <laughs> like literally me and the rest of the GX crew were in the, the E3 media room, just bouncing up and down in our seats, just uh. so full of hype. And, <laughs> and as soon as the reveal happened too, you could hear like audible gasps from games media around the whole press room. They're like, you know, they're all huddled in their own groups watching on their computer. And they're like, oh, Banjo, Oh, Banjo Kazoo. Oh my God. It's finally happening. And yeah, we were just freaking out. And, uh, I mean, I've been very lucky with Smash. Mega Man was my number one most wanted. Banjo-Kazooie is my number three. So no matter what, 
I'm good. Uh, I haven't got my number two yet, which is Sora. Maybe in a year's time, we'll be having ah. another discussion with you guys, and we can talk about how Sora made it into the game, too. But, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I have been very well served with Smash. Yeah, if you want to pick up the Mega Man Legacy Collections out right now on just about any system that you have, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Mega Man Legacy Collection 1 has Mega Man 1 through 6, the NES years, and Mega Man Legacy Collection 2 has Mega Man 7, 8, 9, and 10. So, uh, required reading, if you're into action platformers, if you've never played the original Mega Man series, definitely make sure to remedy that at some point. Definitely not the easiest games, but they are so, so good and absolutely worth playing, every one of them. Well, and one, one thing that's great about playing them in the Legacy Collection is that they are immediately way more approachable for newcomers because they have that rewind feature. So even yeah. if you are, you know, daunted by the, you know, typically high challenge of these games before you really learn them, there is that rewind feature where anytime you die or you get into a bad situation, you can just keep rewinding until you get it right. And so it does take a lot of the challenge out of the game. And I would say maybe, you know, try not to, to overuse it unless you really need to. But it is a great way for anyone, regardless of age or ability, to be able to see every one, every uh, all six games through. So um, and if us being all a flutter about it hasn't, uh, you know, been enough to convince you, I actually do have a Game Explain review of Mega Man Legacy Collection 1 and 2 that you can go check out on the channel. Absolutely do. And you guys, again, I said it at the, at the top, but again, if you guys are not subscribed to Game Explain, what are you doing? Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> Very high praise indeed. Thank you for that. And uh, I will be sure to pass on uh, the love to the rest of the team. Yeah, absolutely do. We, we're big fans of what you guys are doing over there. Guys, make sure you follow Ash. Uh, was that Ash? Uh, at Ash Paulson on Twitter. Yeah, that's just uh, I no, no fancy username. It's just my name, A-S-H-P-A-U-L-S-E-N. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, but mainly Twitter. Uh, and, you know, follow me to, you know, for fun discussions about video games. And I do lots of video game related polls and talk about lots of video game music and dogs and anime and lots of fun <laughs> stuff so yeah i'd love to see you on twitter maybe we can start a conversation totally follow him on twitter check out his work on game explain keep an eye out for more game that tune coming yes. up hopefully and uh yeah one last time folks mr ash paulson yay <laughs> thank you both so much for having me on i really appreciate it and i would be happy to come back anytime oh definitely thanks so much thank you well, that was awesome to talk with Ash about Mega Man 3. Great conversation. Really had a blast talking with him. Love that game. And uh and yeah, I can't believe it's can't believe it's been 30 years. Yeah, tell me about it. Oh, hey buddy. How did things go? Sweet. Good for you. You were acquitted. That's Oh, the it it turns out laws don't actually apply to mythical creatures. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's a good loophole, I guess. You, you're really digging this whole defense attorney thing, and, and you're going to start your own law firm now. Oh, well. Dude, he said, he said all of that? Well, you know, a mother knows, Seth. All right, well, I guess they got to leave the nest sometime, right? Yeah. I mean, the Forest Sage gave us this manacore to teach us responsibility, and we, we raised him to fight for the little people. And be a, a noble defense attorney. So I guess we kind of learned responsibility, maybe. But you go do your thing, buddy. We're proud of you. And we love you. Hopefully we'll see you again one day. That was that was quite the episode, guys. But I have been Genesis Does What Eric Don't. 
And I have been Snake Man Seth. And I guess we'll see what life has in store for us next week here on All In. Do, 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 do. <laughs>